Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Nine. Uh, it was up as high as... So it was up, what? Oh, $24 higher than it closed. Um, it was also lower $3 than it closed. But was, we had a decent day. We got, we got $3 out of it. Uh, <clears throat> um... At the same time, the markets, gold was up dramatically. I mean, it was exciting early this is until maybe noon. And at the same time, the Dow Jones uh, market, for example, is down to almost 300 points. Nevertheless, Dow came up, came back uh, to a positive 53 points to 16,485, while gold dropped from 1,253 to $1,229.40. It's one of those things you look at, and it's hard to it's hard to resist the temptation to say, you know, the markets must be manipulated. All right. Uh, they came back. The market had, was down 300 points. They came back and saved it. Gold was up 25, more than that. And they came back and, and knocked gold down. They didn't knock it into negative territory. We still made three bucks a day, three bucks for the day. And in fact, gold went up another 440 on top of that in the in the foreign markets since the U.S. markets have closed. On the foreign markets, the price of gold is now one thousand two hundred thirty-three dollars and eighty cents. Right. I think one of the lessons here. It doesn't disturb me. It irritates me, but it doesn't disturb me that the price of gold was was up over twelve fifty, and they knocked it back down to twelve twenty nine. Um, it doesn't disturb me because, as I look at it, it's now inevitable. Gold has been over 1250 I think it'll be back. And maybe, who knows, in, in, uh, in tomorrow's market, maybe Friday's. It's hard to say. We don't know what's going to happen here for sure. But the momentum is there. And even when they slap it down dramatically, gold still hangs on. Still turns a three dollar uh, day profit increase in price, and another four forty in the in the overnight markets. So far, we'll see how that works out. We won't know until tomorrow for sure. But gold is increasingly an idea whose time has come. It's it's an idea whose time has come before, and it gets put back for a while, and then it comes again. And I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing an upward trend. That may be long-term. We are always subject to significant changes that can drive the market down. Market price of gold can be collapsed. Who knows what can happen? I mean, some people say it could fall to $1,000 now. Some people say Harry Dent, he was, he's predicted 700 I think <laughs> I think that'll be pre- present Mr. Dent with a, with a great opportunity to develop his sense of humor because he's going to have that prediction thrown in his face for a number of years probably before, and he's going to have to learn to laugh about it if, if he hasn't already. Um, but it's not impossible. 
but it still doesn't get in the way in the way of the inevitable. Price of gold is going up. All right? Even if they knock it down, it's going back up. It's going back up. It's going back up. Right now, it really looks like we are in the beginning of another bull market in gold. Some people would say it's a continuation of the bull market that was already there. We can fence with the words, but the point is, it really does look like the trend is up. Dow Jones, as I said, was up 53 points to 16,485. NASDAQ was up 39 points to 4,543. New York Stock Exchange was up 11.75 to 9,506. U.S. dollar index, um, I think, was actually up in the overnight market. It's down 0.03. During the day, it was up a little bit. Demand is currently at 97.45. And crude oil, up a little bit during the day, down in the overnight markets, is at currently at $32.02 per barrel. And we'll see what's going to happen to crude oil in the future. <clears throat> Let's see if I can find my notes for today. Uh, here's one that interests me. This is a, the headline is from zerohedge.com. And the headline is, we've reached the limit. Denmark's central bank chief says monetary policy is exhausted. Now, Denmark isn't the biggest country on earth. In fact, it's one of the smaller countries. But they carry a certain amount of weight and they have someone in the in the in what in the their equivalent to the Federal Reserve who's essentially said, Look, we can't do any more. We've done everything we can with quantitative easing, it doesn't work. We've hit the limit, there's no more we can do. I'm sure there are a host of other central banks and central bankers who are who would agree with his opinion, they haven't expressed it yet. For most of them, they don't dare. Right? I mean, can the Federal Reserve admit that there's nothing else they can do? They're no longer in control? And if they're not, how will they ever regain control? If they've lost control, will we remain, will we continue to have confidence in the Federal Reserve? I don't see how we can. If we don't have confidence in the Federal Reserve, what is our motivation to invest in the United States stock markets? Over the last several years, the stock markets have gone up, 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 and up. Right? Since the Great Recession of 2008, thereabouts. We've been in a constant uptrend <coughs> for the markets, and the reason for that is not because the economy has grown stronger. The reason is that the markets have been artificially supported by the Federal Reserve. And as long as people know that the markets are supported by the Federal Reserve, they have been inclined to invest. They say, look, the game is rigged. You can't lose. You understand the Federal Reserve is going to guarantee that virtually everyone who gets into the market, it's not everyone, of course, some people lose, but predominantly you're going to win and you're going to win and you're going to win. And it has nothing. You don't have to look at the stock to find out if it's a good stock, a great stock, a poor stock. That's not true. It's an exaggeration to make my point. You do have to look at the stocks, but you don't have to be all that concerned about fundamentals. As long as the game was rigged by the Federal Reserve, you could safely bet, you could bet in the 
in the stock markets, U.S. stock markets, without taking extraordinary risk. And compared to placing your wealth into a bank, after the after the Federal Reserve had established a zero interest rate policy, ZERP, and they kept the interest rate down around a quarter of a percent, they didn't make anything in the bank anyway. So why not invest in the stock market, which was artificially supported and therefore rigged by the Federal Reserve? And a lot of people went along with that. And it's, it was part of the mindset. And here we have a central bank in Denmark that's saying, look, we're admitting that quantitative easing doesn't really work. Now, that admission has to apply here in the United States also. And as people begin to pick up on this, and they are, they're realizing, wait a second, this stuff doesn't work. So do I dare risk investing in the stock market that's been driven, pushed to artificial highs over the last six, eight years by the Federal Reserve? But the Federal Reserve is out of energy, out of tricks, and can no longer support the Federal can no longer support the, uh, the Dow Jones, for example. Are investors still eager? To, the, the game is no longer rigged, at least not to the same extent that was true just a couple of years ago. And more importantly, <clears throat> the game is the game is it's, the game is not rigged, but more importantly, it looks like there's nothing left that the Federal Reserve can do. Can't be rigged. They can't reassert quantitative easing. They can't really give us negative interest rates. They may try. I don't doubt that they may try. And we'll talk a little more about that when James Corbett gets on here on the program. <clears throat> but if they can't hold the market up, how safe is it to invest in the market? You know, there's it was pushed, it was arguably pushed to artificially high levels, levels that weren't justified by fundamentals. They were justified by the tinkering of the Federal Reserve. Investors were not investing in the market per se. They were investing in the Federal Reserve's ability to rig the markets and push them higher and higher and higher without ever really, without ever encountering a serious decline. If the Fed, if it becomes clear and the public comes to believe, investors come to believe, that the Fed can no longer manipulate the market, what's going to happen? I don't believe the market will simply sit there in a, in a state of, you know, just won't go up or won't go down. Once people lose confidence in the Fed's ability, once investors lose confidence in the Fed's ability to manipulate the market, they're going to move out of the market. And prices in the markets should fall. And the implication are, is that those of you who've invested in the stock market, you may want to rethink that. I'm sure all of you are. I'm, I'm sure that's happening already. If you've got, if you have invested some of your wealth in the stock market, I'm sure that those of you who have, you're already in a state of saying, hmm, should I, should I stick or should I go? Should I take the losses I've already suffered here the last year or two? And just accept them and get out while the getting is still good, or shall I hang on because the market is going to come back? I can't tell you. I don't have an answer for that. I can't tell you God's. I don't know. I don't know God's truth on that. Uh, the market could come back. It's not impossible, but everything indicates probably not. 
the odds are in favor of the market going lower and lower and significantly lower. And I'm certainly not the first one or the only one to say so. There is a lot of consensus that the market is headed lower. And some some people are talking 50%, maybe more. So I'm looking at, from my perspective, part of the reason for the market's decline is the Fed's loss of of, uh, capacity to at least maintain the illusion that they're in control of the markets. If they're not, as, again, the Denmark Central, Central Bank chief says, we've reached the limit. Monetary policy is exhausted. Truth be told, I think the same thing could be said from Janet Yellen. I don't think they've got any more market. I don't think they've got any more tricks that can manipulate the market, but we'll see. The article I was quoting from refers to Ben Krugman, uh, um, uh, Paul Krugman, uh, the economist and writer for the the uh, New York Times, Nobel Prize winner, and they they criticize him to some degree, and they say, and they go on and they say one question one might fairly ask Krugman is why the world is still stuck with a stubborn deflationary impulse eight years after Ben Bernanke mustered the courage to print, and that is an interesting question. It's not a new question, of course. But they've been trying to manipulate the markets upward or manipulate the economy upward. They've manipulated the markets, but the economy. They've been trying to stimulate the economy with, by basically giving money away at near zero interest rates. Mm-hmm. It was, this was supposed to, the whole idea behind ZERP, zero interest rate policy, is that the Federal Reserve would cause money to be made available to the public to borrow, and the public would go out and borrow this cheap money, and they'd go out and buy flat-screen TVs and new cars and new homes because the interest rates were so cheap. It hasn't worked. People have refused to accept the promise of a free lunch, and bankers around the world, certainly central bankers, are concerned. What has happened? What has happened where the public is not taking this deal? And I have a theory that maybe we'll get into with uh, James Corbett when he, when he arrives in about five minutes or so. Um, I have a theory, and I've had it for a long time. I wrote an article about it back in the 1990s, about the impact of the Internet. And, and I wonder, and I certainly can't prove it, this is pure speculation on my part, but I wonder if it's possible that the reason deflation has grabbed hold of the global economy and the U.S. economy. And it's been, the forces have been there, they've been growing for, for a while, but they seem to grab and hold them. They can't seem to escape, escape them, the forces of deflation, the forces of economic depression. What's moving them? I think it might be the Internet. And I can hear some people groaning, oh my God, this man lost his mind, that would be me, of course. Well, I don't think so. Uh, the problem with the Internet is that the competition on the Internet is incredibly fierce. And the competition is constantly driving prices down and down and down and down and down. And to some degree, the Internet has forced businesses to go to third world countries for labor because they can't afford first world labor because they are competing on the Internet 
where anyone who has a computer can compete if they care to. And the result is one guy, he, he sells a refrigerator and he makes 20 bucks on it on, on the Internet. And he turns around, um, someone else comes along and says, look, 20 bucks is great, but I, I'll be glad to sell you that refrigerator for $10. And somebody else will sell it for 5 and somebody else will sell it for 1 And pretty soon somebody's out of business and you're buying refrigerators at eBay for a fraction of their former value, their former price. The competition is so fierce on the Internet that it drives prices down, and when prices decline, that's one of the hallmarks of an economic depression. All right? Price declines. And I have a hunch, and that's all it is, is a hunch, but I think maybe the Internet is the, is the responsible party for our prolonged economic recession and our failure to recover. It has fostered levels of competition never before seen on earth. And it inevitably means, I mean, they have programs that will chase down the cheapest product. Tell them what you want. I want a new new uh, camera by this manufacturer. Fine. They'll find a dozen, 20 different places in your, close to your zip code that are selling the camera, and they'll tell you what the prices are and point out this is the best deal. That has to be killing businesses. It's hurting them badly, and how this is going to work out remains to be seen. We'll speculate on the Internet more at some point in the future, but for now we'll take some commercial announcements. And when I return, I should be here with James Corbett. Please stay tuned. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it, It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. 
800-242-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Addisk, and this is Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver, 1-800-375-4188. Our guest is James Corbett from the Corbett Report, CorbettReport.com. Um, James is our regular guest on Thursdays, but he, listened, he missed the last two weeks, one for the Japanese New Year, if I understand correctly, and the second week, your son was sick. I hope your son has recovered and uh, he's doing fine, and I assume that's the case. Am I right? He is indeed. He's, uh, he's young. He, uh, he gets sick. He gets well very quickly, so it was no major deal. But uh, not Japanese New Year, Japanese Foundation Day. Uh, the date that they have historically agreed on was the date of the first emperor, uh, you know, United Japan okay. or what have you. It's uh, probably made up, but anyway, it's a good day for – it's a good excuse for a day off. I understand. Uh do you understand this? I've got a report here from Zero Hedge, and part of the headline is "Safes Sell Out in Japan." Have you seen that article? Are you? I have seen the article. I've read about it online. I have not experienced that yet in my daily life. I'm going to take a trip down to the local home center, as they're called here, to see if uh, if that is actually the case in my neck of the woods. Uh-huh. I think this is probably going to be one of the stories that get reported on more so than you actually find in real life, because I don't see a lot of that panic amongst the general public here yet. But, okay. I mean, I think there is probably a vanguard. There are people with their ear to the ground who know what's going on, with their heads screwed on straight, who realize where things are going and are concerned about uh, their the money in their bank, as I think they should be in the negative interest rate environment. But having said that, let's keep in mind, Japan, I, I'm pretty sure, has to be down near the absolute bottom of crime rates in the entire world. So, again, I'm not sure people are freaking out about anything quite quite yet. I don't think they so they I don't think they mean that they they've sold a, a safe to every every household in Japan as well. A safe I I would suppose I would suppose it's a pretty thin market to begin yeah. with. Safes aren't the sort of thing yeah, that exactly. uh, you buy on a regular basis so exactly. you buy so one out of your lifetime. Gonna, the, yeah, yeah. Run out. But here's another part of it that interested me in the headline. It said one thousand franc note demand soars. All right. And mm. the implication is that the people in Japan are grabbing hold of a thousand franc notes um, against the possibility 
who knows, of uh, high, large, large size notes being pulled out of the economy. It's at least threatened right. in Europe, threatened here in the United States. Do you think the government of the United States is going to remove the, remove the $100 bill from circulation? They are definitely, well, there are people in the system who are talking about it, and most notably, yeah. of course, Larry Summers, who mm-hmm. people might remember as the guy who helped with the repeal of Glass-Steagall back in the late 90s under Clinton, which led to, or at least was part of what led to the, the craziness of the 2000s. So um, there are some high-level people who are talking about this idea. Uh, I think it's going to take a fair bit of conditioning before the public is ready for it. But I do see it as something that's on the cards. And we're starting, I think more likely we're going to see the 500-euro note uh, retired first. And then they'll get to work on the $100 bill. You know, with all the $100 bills that are something like 75%, according to some estimates, of all the $100 bills that are in circulation are actually in circulation overseas. And people have them. It's not just Americans who are, <laughs> some Americans who are hanging on to their $100 bills. People overseas, India, for example, huh? they're hanging on to $100 bills. There's other countries where they believe it's a, val- a valid store of wealth. What happens to those $100 bills if the government pulls them out of circulation in this country? Do they become worthless? One would assume there will be a redemption period. I mean, they're not just going to suddenly say, hey, all those $100 bills are worthless. I think they'll say, you know, you have to trade them in for 20s and 50s or whatever. And I think there would be that window. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Something like that. So if you've got them buried and you don't know about this and you miss the time window, then maybe at that point it'll be useless. Maybe Maybe they have collector's items. It's like Confederate money or something. Oh, my gosh, I just found a... Maybe in a few hundred years, it'll be rare enough to be valuable again. Absolutely. But in the meantime, what's to stop the American people from grabbing on to a thousand franc notes, for example? Or well, nothing, really. If they take and, our $100 yeah. bills away, what's to keep us from getting foreign currencies from some country that still issues a large a large uh, currency, uh, an item of currency. Um, and where I'm going with this is, can the idea is they're supposed they're gonna they want to take the cash out of the society? Can they really do that, or will the people improvise and take? Okay, yeah. we don't have dollars. We'll use we'll use some Chinese yuan. Yeah. And if that's the case, can they really get rid of the $100 bills or the 500 euro? bills can they get rid of those except on a global basis do they have to get rid of all the big notes at the same time if one country sits back and say well we're not getting rid of ours does that suddenly take on a global value people say yeah i'll I'll use i don't know how big how large a note can you get out of china do you know I don't know off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, probably, I, well, I want to say probably not that much. Just when you do the, the the conversion, it won't amount to very much. But I I don't know off the top of my head what their largest note is. Well, there's but having said somebody. that, yeah. well, having said that, I think you're right. I think that people will always find a way. And if that way is uh, a large denomination in another currency, then that will become a valued thing for people, and mm-hmm. people will start to trade in them. Um, and I think the best example, I mean, let's let's put this into an extreme example so you can see the way these types of things work. Of course, in prisons, well, I mean, trading uh, with other prisoners in cash is not allowed. So what do they do? Yep. They find uh, all sorts of other ways. Cigarettes become an economy. Yep. There's a 
there's an economy of cigarettes and people mm-hmm. trade and, and use that as a currency. I mean, it's the same principle. Uh, just think of that in, in society. If they say you can't use this or you can't use that, then people just find a way to trade around it. So you would be, I'm sure people would be surprised what will ultimately end up circulating, you know, if they do try to do this on an ad hoc basis. I think you're right. I think it would have to be, I mean, I, I don't think it'll be a coordinated all on the same day global push, but I think they will try to knock over the 500 euro and then the $100 bill, and then there will be others that will follow behind them. And uh, one has to wonder what would be the currency that would be the strongest with the largest denomination that would hold out the longest against that onslaught. And, you know, if you uh, had to guess, which one would it likely be? Yeah, well, Swiss well, Frank, one could it I mean, Switzerland has... is likely to stand up and say, look, we're going to issue, hey, I see an opportunity. I'm going to issue some <laughs> 5,000 ruble notes right. as in Russia. Right, right. Well, yeah, it could be that, but I don't think, well... I don't think you should trust the ruble that much, considering the precarious position it's in. But I, I think the Swiss franc, I mean, Switzerland has been known historically for its neutrality, for its unwillingness to go along financially, to reveal banking records and that sort of thing. That has changed in the last few years with uh, various U.S. regulations now applying to uh, Swiss banks, and they're starting to pry open that famous secrecy. But I think there's still the reputation there that Switzerland would be a, a, a holdout against this type of move. So Swiss francs might be might be the logical conclusion. But again, as I say, you never really know. You can't predict the way these things will turn out. I have a friend who lives down in Argentina. And he's told me that Argentina goes through these little currency problems on a regular basis. <laughs> and the locals know how to handle it. They just print their own money. They print essentially trade units for their city, their community, their county, their region. And they all and they all agree, yeah, I'll accept this for so many however they price them out and they, they agree to accept them and they you know, they'll enforce the acceptance and uh business goes on. They're, they make their own money, that's all. They're used to it. It's not so they're not afraid of Argentina having another another currency crisis. They just oh, fine. You know, we'll make our own money. We don't need you guys. So it is interesting. There's, there's, uh, it's, it's maybe the maybe the story is hyped, and intended, or at least has the effect of scaring people more than would be, than is justified. And of course, one of the points is how many people have ninety percent junk silver, or even gold coins. Mm-hmm. I mean, once it goes down, if there's no if there are no hundred dollar bills left, but there's still silver dollars. I'm going to guess that some people are going to trade in silver dollars. So. There will absolutely be pressure on other markets like precious yeah. metals if, if they do go to something like that. But it, I think you're right. It's, it's fundamentally a psychological operation. I mean, fundamentally, that's what this is about. And it's about getting the vast majority of people to go along with it. Uh, of course, there are going to be people who are going to find the cracks and people yeah. who would yeah. who would be the types who would hoard cash anyway would find another way to do it. But that's not everybody. As you know, a lot of people are just happy to go along with the system as it is, and they just kind of accept uh, whatever's well, happening. So, What do you think is the fundamental difference between people who do go along with the system and people who are disinclined to go along with the system? Can you point to I, another single... Yeah, I, I think it would be desperation would be one thing. I mean, if you are not in a position where you feel that it personally affects you or you are worried that it is going to personally affect you, I think you're more willing to go along with the system. And the opposite of that is if you are in very dire straits where you are 
completely at the mercy of the system as it exists, you might actually desire that system because yeah. it's the difference between life and death. I it's the kind of people who are probably people who are middle class, but slipping down that ladder are probably the most likely to, to be the ones who would try to find other ways around it. And who would be the most likely to, oh, you say you think the they're looking for ways around, they're looking for ways around the system. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, the difference between the two classes, those that go along with the system, and they're not concerned by it. And those who are concerned say, i got to protect myself. I think it's the difference between people who have savings and people who don't have savings. Yeah. yeah. You have savings, say, look, i got some wealth. I've got to protect this stuff. Yeah. Um, that means i got to turn it into gold or platinum or diamonds or something that yeah. where I can preserve the value after they get rid of the cash. Well, people who don't have any savings, what do they care? Right, exactly. People who are comfortably middle class and have had some savings and are uh, and are happy about the future probably will go along with the system. But those who are have have that that exact same circumstance but are unhappy about their future prospects will be looking for ways out of it. And I mean, I can uh, attest to this. After the 2008 Lehman collapse, uh, I had a huge uptick in people interested in my website looking for financial information. Yep. People who just a year or two ago didn't know or didn't care anything about the you know the housing bubble or any of that information suddenly become very interested in it when it yep. starts putting them in financial jeopardy. So I think yep. it's the same principle writ large on society. I can give you the reverse of that same principle or give you a, a, another example of that same principle. It's not reverse. It, I used to publish a magazine called The Anti-Shyster. And started in 1990 and continued publishing. It went on, ultimately, I published until 2012. But every year, it grew by 50 to 100%. Mm-hmm. Now, it started out next to nothing. So it didn't amount to anything for the first couple of years. But we got to coming into 1996. I was coming into a situation where if it doubled again in 1996, I was going to make a bunch of money. I wasn't going to be Citizen Kane and the rest of that sort of thing, but I was going to be making a good living just working out of my little condominium. And I, 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 my office was the second bedroom in the little condominium and the rest of that sort of thing. Hey, I, I was a happy camper. The business that had been growing steadily by 50 to 100% per year for six years, basically, 96, we came around to 96, it crashed and business dropped by half. And the first thing I thought was, oh, my God, what have I done? What have I done? All right? Then I found out that newspapers and news magazines had also lost, I can't recall, it was something like 15% of market share. People did, and then I found out that the mainstream news programs, CBS, NBC, ABC, Evening News, they all lost 5% of market share. And people didn't stop listening to CBS to listen to NBC. They stopped listening. What happened? Mm. Clinton opened the doors to easy credit in 96. Yeah, yeah. And as long as their homes and everything else were in jeopardy, they were interested in publications. They were interested in news in general. Mm. But once they got a new supply of toys, interest just absolutely folded up. And I knew then if you could hang on long enough until the market turned around and people became frightened because someone was taking their toys then I could start making money again and I couldn't hang on that long as, they, as mm-hmm. things turned out. But uh, mm-hmm. it was a lesson for me. I know they're interested in the kind of information people like you and I are fixated on. They're interested as long as someone's taking their toys away, their homes, their cars, whatever. 
But as soon as happy days are here again, get some credit into the system, easy money, and it's like a drug. Yeah. It's like someone gave a shot of sugar to a, to a diabetic, just injected sugar into their bloodstream. All of a sudden, yeah, buddy, we're happy. No point to reading, no point to understanding anything. So blah, blah, blah. That was my We can lament that fact, but it is a fact of human nature, largely. So um, I I don't know how how best to counteract that. And and that's, of course, exactly why you see a lot of fear-mongering in the alternative media as well, because, hey, if we can make people afraid, then they'll be interested. It's hard to find anything that sells better than fear. And it's... And it's a it's a frustrating insight. I mean, there are some people, and I could name them, and you'd be aware, and you you would recognize the name. Their fundamental their fundamental product is fear, mm-hmm. fear, fear, fear. Sell, sell. Oh my God, sky is falling, sky is falling, and people buy it, people buy it, and keep on buying it. Um, I had a point that it was going to go with that, and I've uh, it has <laughs> fear. Well, luckily, we're running up on a break. <laughs> That's exactly right. I'll have I'll have a commercial break here, and perhaps I'll remember whatever it was I was going to. I was going to talk about with the fear thing in the first place. Let's take a break for some commercial announcements. I'm Alfred Adisk. I'm here with James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. And we will be back in just a moment. Please stay tuned. Aspirin mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with Salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, you can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the www.thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
I'm Alfred Addis, here with our guest, James Corbett from the Corbett Report. And I had my my little notion, uh, whatever it was that I'd forgotten, came back to me while we were on break. And what I wanted to ask you is, as a prolific commentator on what's going on in the world, observer, commentator, do you find yourself facing a dilemma where you've got to report things that are negative, and you're reporting warnings and dangers. You find yourself faced with a, a kind of a dilemma. How far can you go without selling fear? What's an, what's an appropriate warning and what's too much? Mm, absolutely. I mean, it is something because as we've just discussed, there is that, that phenomenon that people who are contented and happy and don't, don't think that there's anything to worry about will go about their daily business and don't care. And they will respond to fear triggers. So the obvious the obvious uh, uh, thing that occurs to someone who's putting out media is, oh, well, then we've got to make people afraid. We've got to put yeah. out a sensational headline. So there's always that 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 balance that you have to yeah. do between uh, uh, letting people know that, oh, you should be concerned about this, but not doing it in a way that, you know, freak out and, and panic and sell the farm and, you know, go crazy about it. And it is don't a balance. jump out the window. We're just telling you. Yeah, yeah there may exactly. Be don't don't jump out you... the window, window yet. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's something that I confront on a daily basis. I mean, even something as simple as titling a YouTube video. Yeah. I mean, how do you get a title that is effective, that, that's interesting, that, that gets people's attention, but isn't, you know, trying to sell fear or trying to panic people or trying to get them just to click out for the sake of clicking? I mean, it is something you have to think about all the time, and I, yeah. I don't know if I do that balance any better or worse than anyone else, but yeah. I do think about it. Yeah, I know. I don't think you can – I don't even know where the line is exactly. You're, you're looking and saying, where's that yeah. line? There's got to be a yeah. line here. I don't want to cross the line, but where is it? Here we've got another article as well. It's, it's just Saudi Arabia launches military exercise with 20 nations. This goes back uh, eight or ten days ago announcing North Thunder or whatever, where do we stand? Are the 350,000 troops that are allegedly lined up in the north side of Saudi Arabia, are they really likely to invade Syria? Well, no, because there's a cessation of hostilities that's just been declared, right? Um, hmm. Well, Christmas. Yeah. I, I, I mean, let's look at it this way. Last week, there was mu- news that there was this Munich peace ag- agreement that had been reached, that there was going to be a ceasefire. And it just didn't happen. It just never happened. It never materialized. No one stopped fighting. And now we've got this new declaration. OK, this Saturday, it's going to all cessation of hostilities this Saturday, except, of course, for ISIS and except for Al Qaeda. And oh, yeah, except for other terrorist groups as vaguely denominated in this Security Council resolution. So we don't even really know yet um, who this is supposed to apply to, let alone who they'll try to apply this to, let alone how it will actually be applied. So take it for what it's uh, worth. But at any rate, they have come to some sort of diplomatic understanding that there's going to be an attempt at some sort of ceasefire. I don't, as you can tell from my tone, I don't think it's going to hold very long, if at all. So um, I don't know if there's going to be an outright invasion, a full-fledged invasion, but there certainly is enough tension there to make it at least a possibility, a viable possibility, because uh, things have changed so much in the last several months now with uh, the P4 plus one, uh, Russia, Iran, Iraq, uh, Hezbollah, and whoever else, <laughs> Lebanon, <laughs> no, Syria, uh, of course, Syrian government, um, are, are now joined together and 
have been having some success in pushing back all of the terrorist groups, not just ISIS. And that's really worrying Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has been on a, on a junket lately with their foreign minister going around trying to drum up war and now talking about having nukes and uh, all of this crazy talk that's coming out right now, I think is a sign they're getting pretty desperate. And add to that the pressure on the Saudi Arabian reserves from the falling oil prices and the fact that they've quadrupled uh, arms imports in the last couple of years and cannot continue the, the military expenditures indefinitely given their declining revenues. And that puts another impetus on them to do something sooner rather than later. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a powder keg. It really is. And a, a worrying one. How long can a coalition of soldiers and equipment that Saudi Arabia has put together, 350,000 men allegedly, and I don't know, thousands of tanks perhaps and hundreds of aircraft, how long can they hold that together before they finally just say, okay, we're going home? It's an excellent question, and I wish I had an answer for you, an informed answer. I really don't. I don't know what their, their military expenditure on that force is. I don't know how it relates to their reserves and what they might have up their sleeve. So I really couldn't even give an informed guess on that. But I would assume it would not be – I mean, we're not talking in the multiple years here. We're no. talking if they're going to make a move, it's going to come this year, probably sooner than later. So – um, but uh, but I think what I see materializing right now from the propaganda that we're we're getting is that the most likely solution, quote unquote, to this crisis that the uh, the, the the sort of NATO powers are looking at right now is the partition of Syria. They want to try some sort of partition deal where, OK, Assad, you can keep this part of the country, but this part of the country is going to be governed by you know this coalition over here. They're going to try some sort of partition move as the diplomatic solution to this. And I think that's where the momentum is heading. We've seen both Kerry and now Netanyahu coming out in the last couple of days talking about this. Well, that's actually perhaps the only way to get out of this. They're going to try to give everybody a piece of the pie, <laughs> except for Mr. Assad. He may hang on to a piece, but he's going to lose a piece. That's everyone else will kind of gain a piece. Um Part of the reason I'm asking about how much longer they can hold this together, they put Northern Thunder together under the pretext that this was a military exercise. But if I understand correctly, the exercise was only supposed to last for 18 days. It was supposed to end on or about the end of February. So if they try to hold the military together or try to hold this this force together, 350,000 men, after the exercise was scheduled to end, then they've lost their pretext and they have to admit, oh, actually, this is an invasionary force. This isn't an exercise. We're actually preparing to invade. Do you agree? That that all sounds like it checks out. From what I understand, this exercise is supposed to go till March 10th. So I right, agree March with your 10th. assessment. All right, that yeah, might yeah. be. They, even so, they've got their own at that after on March 11th. This is a, this is an invasionary for an invasion, an invasionary force. It's no longer an exercise. Exactly. Um, which implies that if they're going to move, next two weeks, if they're if they're really going to invade, it implies that it happens in the next two weeks. I've got an article here from Zero Hedge, and the headline is war, "Road to World War Three." Turkish army enters Syria after second day of shelling as Saudi warplanes arrive. And then I've got another one. Uh, there's a headline that says, Russian Prime Minister warns U.S. and Arab countries, invading Syria will start new world war. 
will we really see a world war if these countries, if Turkey and the Saudi coalition actually invades Syria. Does that constitute a world war? Does world war have to include Russia and the United States and uh, France and uh, the European Union and NATO and China? I mean, is it a world war or are we threatened with a regional war, perhaps a Middle East war? Is world war hyperbole? It, well, it would be by definition a regional war at that yeah. point, and uh, it, it really kind of already is, but it's kind of more like a proxy war at this point. If it was an all honest, you know, boots on the ground, all out invasion, then it would be a, an out and out regional war. And it would be difficult to imagine, given the diplomatic stances, given how everyone's lined up, unless some very cool heads prevail, it would be difficult to imagine how that would not become very quickly the very type of powder keg like the Balkans in 1914, where, yes, this one incident in this one place involves these parties, but those parties are connected to those other parties, and those other parties are connected to those other parties. It's a very similar situation. So it is a very real possibility. I'm, I'm not saying it is going to happen, but it really could happen because of the way Russia is lined up with Iran or Iraq, Syria, and because of the way NATO is lined up with the, uh, the Gulf states, with Israel on the other side of that, all of those tangling alliances come into play if, if someone does declare war in a formal sense with boots on the ground. So I, I, don't, I don't underplay that. I think it's a very real possibility. Right. What about Israel? Have they, been, have they benefited from the turmoil in Syria, does it diverted attention that might otherwise, hostilities that might otherwise be directed at Israel? Are they instead focused in, uh, on Syria? Uh, and is Israel getting a break right now, or are they in more danger than ever before? Uh, actually, uh, not really. Uh, I, I think this is, surprisingly, exactly the plan, um, which sounds surprising, but if you go back to 1982, there was a, uh, a foreign policy document uh, that was written by Oded Yunon. It was published by the Association of Arab American University Graduates, but it was uh, originally in, um, in, in uh, some sort of foreign policy journal in Israel. It was uh, called the Strategy for Israel in the 1980s, because this, again, was written in 1982. It's uh, informally known as the Zionist Plan for the Middle East. And in that, it talks explicitly about breaking up Iraq and Syria um, along uh, ethnic and sectarian lines, exactly as Iraq really fundamentally has been broken up into three states on a functional, practical level. It's uh, now Sunni, Shia, and Kurd. And exactly as is happening in Syria. And that document talks in some explicit detail about the way that uh, Syria would be broken up into its Alawite and uh, Sunni and, and Shia uh, versions it, it's, and the Druzes were, were uh, mentioned in there as well in that document. Uh, it talks about it quite explicitly, the way Syria would be broken up. Now, here we are a few decades later, and that, that is uh, not only what's happening by de, de facto, but what now, as I say, Kerry and Netanyahu are now saying, well, this is the solution to the crisis. We're going to have to break up Syria. So uh, rather than some sort of you know, calamity for Israel, I think it's exactly what they've had as an explicit foreign policy goal for, for decades now. Well, the Middle East countries are largely a creation of Europe. All right? They just drew boundaries here, there, and wherever were convenient from the European perspective, and they divided, on some of those, some of those lines, divided one culture, uh, and it was separated. 
and half of it was in one country and half in another country, and there were other cultures. And the point I'm getting to is, is it really a chore to break the Middle East down based on religion and culture, or isn't that a natural fragment point, division point? Just it's it's easy. It's like tapping a diamond. If you hit it in exactly the right place, it'll just break for you, you know, beautifully. Um, is it that hard to break the break away the Sunni from the Shia or the Alawites? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, you're right. There aren't sort of natural divisions there. And mm-hmm. the, the borders that have been drawn have nothing to do with those natural divisions because those borders were drawn largely, the way the Middle East looks today, was largely drawn in boardrooms in Paris in 1918, mm-hmm. uh, in 1919, in the peace talks. I mean, that's where the modern Middle East was really shaped. And it took these, you know, the, the, these tyrannical dictators, the, the, the Saddam Husseins and others, to unite countries that otherwise aren't really countries. They're countries in name only and uh, to unite them under a sectarian regime of various sorts. And so when you start toppling those, then yes, this is what's going to happen precisely because you have these unnatural divisions, plus you have all the other players at the table who are fueling it and egging egging it on for their own regional power ambitions. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a way, yes, you can say that this is kind of the natural way that this is going to play out because of the way that it was unnaturally forced back in the early part of the 20th century. I mean, there's an historical reason why it is fracturing the way it is right now. And that historical reason itself was an intrusion into the, into the natural politics of the, the region. And once this division, a new, a new division takes place, and people are allowed to set up their own countries based on common culture, common religion, whatever, would that mean that the Middle East is likely to stabilize to any significant degree, or is it always going to be a hotbed? As long as it remains strategically important, primarily for its oil resources, but for other reasons now, for pipeline routes and for um, uh, access to the, the Straits of Hormuz and other key uh, access points like that, as long as it has that strategic interest, there will be military interest in the region. So you don't anticipate this peace peace is not in the Middle East future, uh, other than maybe a few years at a time. But long term, we're going to see instability and probably violence. Yep. Until there is a fundamental change in uh, in oil would be the the first thing that would have to change. And also the way that things are shipped through the world. So, no, not anytime soon, not anytime in the foreseeable future. We've got about 45 seconds left. Give you one more quick question. Russia bans U.S. corn and soybean imports because of GMO contamination. Is Russia really interested in food safety, or is this some way, uh, is this ban uh, some sort of a slap at the United States? I would like to think that it has some basis in people actually being concerned about uh about the the health of what they're eating, um, and certainly there have been indications that the the Russia has been one of the countries that that really is uh, interested in this and in taking action. Uh, China as well, and it is interesting that that also plays into the political geopolitical tensions between the U.S. primarily and these countries. But uh, it may be one of those things where Canada and England and other countries that are in the back pocket of the U.S. will not talk about these things they'll they'll be happy to overlook them but that countries that are in the enemies list will 
we'll take a look at it. And I think that might be an aspect of what's going on. At any rate, it's good for the people of Russia. It's good for the people yeah. of China that they're not ac- accepting these monstrosities. It may even be good for the people of the United States if ultimately enough pressure can be brought to bear by some countries rejecting GMO, or maybe we have less of it here. In any case, we're out of time, James. Thank you for being on the program. always appreciate talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate you listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next week. I'll be back with Melody tomorrow. In the meantime, with the good Lord, bless you, me, Melody, Frank the producer, and James Corbett. Bye-bye. All day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. AVR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water.
donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 316-619-4886. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still Wednesday, February 24th, 2016, and it's about seven and a half minutes past 8 p.m. Pacific time. If that's when it is where you're at, we are, in fact, live. 800-932-1980 is the toll-free call-in number. You can also participate by going to the chat room, which is at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And you can contact me directly utilizing Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is AVRN Talk. Okay, there we have all that. As I mentioned, it is Wednesday evening. And that means we've got Melissa Roxanne on as co-host. Welcome, Melissa. Well, we're supposed to have Melissa Roxanne on as co-host. I'm just wondering if we're not experiencing some more. Now I hear her. Well, I did for a second. Anyway... I'll leave the fader up, and if uh, she can ever get her act together down there with her stuff, uh, she will be on. But until that time, I got other things here. Always news, 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 lots of news. You know, (laughs) drudge here. I'll just do this here easy. You know, Trump win rattles China. So I clicked on it. I read the whole... uh, article, and there's really nothing in there that's, you know, that I I would say constitutes rattled, okay? I don't know, rattled to me is, uh, I don't know, that's kind of severe when you're rattled, you know? You ever been rattled? I have. I read this article, and they're like, well, you know, the U.S. and China being the two biggest, you know, bullies on the block, Uh, you know, it's important that we get along and all this stuff. And they just went about saying that. They didn't even specifically mention what Trump was talking about. And he said he'll punish China if they continue to manipulate their uh, currency market. Which, oh boy, we can all say hurrah, yay, you go, Donald. Uh, But you know what? Really? Is anybody going to talk to the Federal Reserve, maybe, and tell them, oh, and by the way, you're going to be punished also if you continue to screw with every single thing there is no demand? (laughs) Honestly, how about an audit? Ooh, oh no, that might, uh, you know, that might upset the Federal Reserve. They come up with all kinds of lame little excuses about why... Why can't you be audited? Oh, okay. Are any of your arguments going to work for me? 
when the IRS wants wants to know, well, we want to know what's going on with you. We want to know this. We want to know what. No, hey, oh no, no, no. That would upset my whole uh, my whole operation. You know, my confidence would be uh, diminished, which could be very bad. So no, no, you don't get to know what I'm doing because, well, we can't have my confidence diminished. Really? You know, so who cares if China's rattled anyway? They're not rattled, though. You see, this is just some sensationalized headline. You know, I mean, you put out some, you know, China declares war! You know, or or something crazy like that. It gets people to click on it. It gets some traffic. It gets, you know, people interested. You know. All right, well, anyway, let's move on. Unless, of course, Melissa's there yet. Mm, I guess not. I have the fader up. We're listening. Here's something bad. This is something that actually is uh, of note because you can count that this is not just going to be Virginia. All right? This all started with a reporter's attempt to learn whether problem police officers were moving from department to department. In other words... You know, you oops, accidentally shoot somebody, and then you get your administrative leave, and there's lots of heat, and the chief doesn't want you in his department anymore, but he writes you a shining resume or a shining, uh, what do they call that when you go to one job and somebody says, yeah, he's a good guy. Anyway, the chief vouches for you for another chief, and you go to work for another police department. Who then does the same thing? Folks, I don't know if, how many of you out there have listened to Colonel Bo Greitz, but he has a story, and you know, and he admits that he did the wrong thing, that he wished he would have done the right thing. But at the time, you stick together, you know, you're all in this together. Well, what ended up happening was Bo Greitz, it came... It, it, became known to him that he had a homo in his unit or under his command. Talked to the guy, and the guy promised, oh, I promise I'll never do it again, and just this thing and whatever, and it was just this one time, and it's just that, and blah, 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 blah. So instead of drumming him out of the military like he should have and like the rules of the time said to do so, Bogrights transferred him. Well, he sucked his way up through the ranks to become uh, like a you know major, you know super sergeant, you know uh, sergeant major or something. And he was taking advantage of enlisted men. See, this is what happens. You figure, well, look, I don't want you around me. I'm just going to pan you off on somebody else. Let, let, let it be somebody else's problem. And that's what ends up happening. 
someone else doesn't view it as a problem and they promote it and they ended up and then they end up with homosexual predators in positions of authority and trust that's what's going on in the police departments not so much with homosexuality but cops that are acting improperly they're not getting fired and being forbidden to be police officers anymore they're being let go or being allowed to leave a, a department so they can go get a job in another department. So this reporter is trying to figure out if that's going on. So guess what happened? Guess what the legislature of Virginia is doing based on that? They are writing, it's already passed through the Virginia Senate. Legislation that is again bringing national scrutiny to the Virginia General Assembly. A bill that would keep all Virginia police officers' names secret. That's right, folks. The secret police. How much longer until they start wearing masks? Huh? I mean, come on. Every good criminal robber highway man should have a mask, shouldn't he? Well, we're getting there. In a climate where the actions of police nationwide are being watched as never before, supporters say the bill is needed to keep officers safe from people who may harass or harm them. But the effort has drawn the attention of civil rights groups and others who say police should be moving toward more transparency, not less to ensure that troubled officers are found and removed. You know, uh, wait a minute. To keep officers safe from people who may harass or harm them? And who exactly is keeping the people safe from the police thugs harassing and harming them? Huh? Oh, wait, I know. That's why we have the Second Amendment. And uh, I got a news for the idiot governor in Vermont who keeps talking about hunting and hunting. And I love to hunt and I love hunting. But we got to do something to get a, uh, you know, there's no reason why anybody needs an AK-47 to go hunting. Well, guess what? Slick. The Second Amendment isn't about hunting. It's about taking fools like you out. That's what it's about. That's why the Second Amendment exists. Not for hunting, not even for, for, for defending this nation. You! That's why the Second Amendment is there. All you pieces of garbage in the federal and state governments, when you start getting way out of hand, that's what the Second Amendment is for. It's so we can find you and we can kill you. That's what it's for. Read the document. Read the preamble to the ten... Uh, to the ten uh, the Bill of Rights, the Ten Amendments there that were passed. Well, there were actually like 12 or 13 of them originally, but in the Bill of Rights, but 10 got passed right away. Go look, go read the preamble. Go read why the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, all the other amendments are there. That's why. You, to keep you in line. Now, you can say, well, oh, that's not, you know, I mean, that, that sounds a little scary and threatening to say to kill us. Well, what do you think it's there for? What do you think guns are for, buddy? 
But the First Amendment, and the Fourth Amendment, and the Sixth Amendment, and all of them, all the amendments are there to keep you government slugs in line, under control. That's what it's there for. That's what it says in the preamble to the Bill of Rights. I'm not making it up. Hey, I guess we should just erase our whole history then, because they were all just a bunch of terrorists, extremists, right? Is that right? Am I getting that right? Is that what our government is now calling the founding fathers and the documents they wrote of this nation? Extremists? Racists? Terrorists? Really? Because if you are, you are demonstrating treason. Because the government you are in is only created by those documents. And if you're going to start saying, well, those documents are radical and extremist and terroristic, well, then let's get a jail cell ready for you pretty pretty quick because you know what? You took an oath to uphold those terroristic extremist documents, didn't you? An oath is your pledge. Pledges are enforceable under the law. Hey, go ahead and uh, call up PBS during one of their pledge drives and say, I pledge $100 to you. Here's where I live, and this is who I am, and yada, yada, yada. And then tell them when they call you up the next day and say, hey, when can we expect that check? Say, oh, I was just kidding. You know, I just came to the conclusion that you're a communistic bunch of uh, socialists, so uh, I've decided, nah, I was just joking. Yeah, see how funny that joke gets. You're obligated. When you make a pledge, you are obligated by it. Unless, of course, well, there's some question, what kind of pledge, you know, what, what exactly are you pledging to? I mean, you know, hey, PBS is easy. I'm pledging to give you whatever amount of money. That's it. That's it. It's easy. What are the what are the people in government pledging to? Well, whatever the oath says, they're pledging to uphold and defend to the best of their ability. Yada yada yada. Execute the laws. You know, the whole thing. They're pledging to do that. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Now, you know, again, we go back, it works both ways, and I don't like it, but it does. It's, you know, they sign their oath, and that's that. Well, so now what does that oath mean? Well, it means what they say it means. I am defending the Constitution in my way, under my interpretation. Depends what is is, right? Well... That's And you can see that is how they're going. That is what they're doing. Because, hmm, when was the last time a public official got, uh, you know, pulled out onto the carpet in court for violating his pledge? I don't remember anybody ever in my life. Maybe you do. Okay, so... 
that's how it goes for them. They sign their little oath, and they say, well, it means what I mean. And, oh, yes, I am upholding the Constitution. We're all looking at each other going, what? What, are you kidding me? Well, yeah, you know, I, I interpret it to mean this, and I interpret it to mean that. And seeing as how there was no meeting in the minds, and it's only my signature on this document, everything on it must mean what I say it means. Oh. Wow. Boy, that kind of sucks. Well, yeah, in that respect it does until you turn it around and say, oh, okay, so I understand how things are going. That's how it works. That's fine. So, hey, whose signature's on that driver license of yours? Just yours, right? There was no meeting in the minds. There's no contract. You just pledged, okay, I agree to whatever this license is. Well, what is that? What did you agree to? Well, whatever you agreed to, it's up to you. You're the only one that signed it. There was no meeting in the mind, so everything you agreed to is whatever you say it is. Because if it works that way for them, then it works that way for us. See? See, these whole things that everybody goes, well, this is an adhesion contract. This is a unilateral contract. Guess what, folks? Put on your thinking caps and realize unilateral contract is an oxymoron that cannot exist in reality. Okay? You can't have a unilateral contract. Okay? Because a contract is a meeting of the minds unilateral means I just did it all by myself. That's not a contract. Well, I see Melissa's trying, and and let's give her an opportunity to speak. Speak, Melissa, if you can, if they're, well, I know you can, but I mean if we can hear you. Waiting. No, I guess not. Well, I don't know. I just don't know. Anyhow, so there you go with that. That's something to think about and something to look into. And how many adhesion so-called contracts are they? Huh? And these so-called contracts with these so-called banks. Hmm. What kind of a contract is it when one party can change things whenever they want to whatever they want and your only choice is to stop doing business with them, but every one of them in the whole industry has the same thing. So in other words, if you don't want to be held hostage by a bank, you don't have to have a bank account. But if you don't have a bank account, you can't actually function. A lot of people can't function at all. Let's say you have Social Security. Let's say you're getting a military retirement check. Let's say they tell you one day, guess what? We're no longer doing paper checks. We're doing only direct deposits, so you must have a bank account or you will no longer get your benefit. So you have to go get a bank account 
with an entity that says, huh, we can change this contract anytime in any way that we want to. All we have to do is give you notice. See, that's not a contract either because it's an unconscionable contract. See, nobody would voluntarily sign a contract like that. The only way people sign contracts like that is under coercion. And if you're coerced into signing a contract, that's not your signature. Yeah, it's a tough sell because we're brought up, right? Well, good honest American, if you borrow something, you got to pay it back, right? Okay, good. Let's look at that for a minute. So you go to the bank and you say, ooh, hey, a credit card, cool, great. So you go out, charge it up, charge it up, charge it up, and go, hey, whoa. What did the bank say they're doing? They say you're they're actually loaning you that, right? But is that really what they're doing? No, it isn't really what they're doing. Because, see, they didn't have anything to loan you. You created the asset that they loaned you. You see? There was nothing to loan. Do you know why? Because every dollar in this country that is created is borrowed into existence. You know, everybody likes to say, including myself, well, they just spend money out of thin air. Well, okay, that's kind of true, but it's not technically true. Because technically true, what's technically true is every dollar is borrowed into existence. But you see, oh wow, again we have an oxymoron. Because how exactly do you lend something that has not yet been created? Huh? Right? So the bank says, sure, I'll lend you a thousand bucks for that refrigerator. Just sign your name here. But in actuality, when you sign your name there, that thousand dollars is now created by your signature. You created that credit. You created that asset. And now, the bank seizes it, times it by nine, and wants you to pay back the asset that you created for them to use for their benefit and profit. Wow, great deal, huh? So you know what, folks? Stop feeling bad. When the time comes and you have to tell the bank, hey, you know all that money? Screw you, you lying, thieving, criminal, treasonous traitor. Huh, that was pretty good without even saying words I'm not supposed to say on the radio. But you bankers out there understand something. I was thinking it, okay? I was thinking it. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a bit. 
we'll see if we can't do something about, you know, getting Melissa on the air or something here. body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
closed, unemployment insurance running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people. Your neighbors, the mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes, now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to Wichita Homeless. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
All right, welcome back, everybody. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still Wednesday, February 24, 2016, about 8.39 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that's when it is where you're at, we are, in fact, live. 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980 is the toll-free call-in number. You can also participate by going to the chat room located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link over on the left-hand side. And uh, click it. Head on in there. It's real easy. You'll have no trouble. And you can also contact me through Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is AVRN Talk. And there you have it. Those are the ways you can participate in this show. Okay, let's uh, pull up the fader here and see if Melissa Roxanne is with us. Yeah, I'm here. You are. I can barely hear you. Yep. I'll turn it up. No. No? Just hang on a second here. Yeah, okay. I guess you better turn it up. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. uh, Hang on a second. Hey, you know those two uh those two chords in that black box? Yeah. Reverse them. We'll give you a minute to do that anyway. Melissa had a uh a, a wrong setup on something and uh trying to get that squared away and fixed it now and uh we'll see if we can get that working here. Uh I don't know if she has them reversed or not. Yes, I do. Oh, then I guess put them back the way they were. <laughs> well, you see, there you go. That's how it is. Uh, you know, trial and error sometimes, but uh, that's what we do. Sounds okay. Somebody in the chat room thought that sounds okay. You couldn't even hear her. I couldn't anyway. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's... Oh, no, that's not true. I heard the songs just fine. Okay, let's pull up the fader and see if Melissa got that reversed back around and if we yeah. can hear it. Is this the charm that works this time, third time? Well, it's not really. There's a buzz there. Let's so. just forget me for tonight. Go ahead, without me. Huh, okay. Yeah, well, that buzz is not good, so uh, we'll just, uh, well, Melissa had her cameo appearance for this evening. And there there it was. All right, now, where'd I leave off? Oh, yeah, that's right, ripping it on the banks. But I'm kind of done ripping on the banks, folks, because, you know, really it's an involved subject that the radio can only do so much for. I mean, I can maybe, hopefully, give you enough to interest you to go and look it up yourself. You know, because, honestly, this is... It, it, <laughs> It's going to take a while to understand. It really is, because we have been taught nothing but lies our whole lives about the monetary system. And that's a fact. And there's lots of evidence out there to prove it. All right, here we go. Here's the headline. A warning to the feds on incremental prosecutions of the liberty movement. 
at the very onset of what would become the Soviet Empire, Vladimir Lenin decreed the creation of a national internal army called the Chechka, Chika, or C-H-E-K-A, whatever. I'm going to say Chika, okay? That's what I'm going to call it. The Chika were handed very broad police powers and tasked with the disruption and elimination of any form of dissent within the communist system. Lenin launched what would be later known as the Red Terror, in which nearly every Russian population center had an established uh, Chechka office of operations using surveillance, infiltration, nighttime raids, imprisonment, torture, and execution to silence opposition to the authority of the state. Some of these people were active rebels. Some were outspoken political opponents and journalists. Others were merely average citizens wrongly accused by neighbors or personal enemies. The Chica created a society of fear and suspicion in which no one could be trusted and little criticism was spoken above a whisper anywhere, even in one's own home. You know, do we have any of that going on in this country? You know, where everybody is talking this politically correct crap, but when they get an, uh, an opportunity to take a poll in secret, in the privacy of their own home, turns out 87% of the American people's biggest fear is the, the corrupt government? 87%? Really? Why isn't there more talk about it? You know why? Because people are afraid to talk about it. We had the federal government, through the White House, chief of staff, telling us, well, you know, Americans got to watch what they say. What? It's important to note, however, that the dominance of the Chica was established incrementally, not all at once. Agents of the state began their cleansing of the Russian population by targeting specific groups at opportune times and worked their way through the citizenry in exponential pace. The most intelligent, effective, and dangerous activists and rebels were slated for destruction first, as they represented a kind of leadership mechanism by which the rest of the population might be mobilized or inspired. More innocuous organizations like Christian churches and rural farmers were persecuted as background noise while the political mop-up was underway. Through this incrementalism, the communists were able to intern or eradicate vast numbers of potential opponents without the rest of Russians raising objections. The general populace was simply thankful that the eye of the Chica had not been turned on them. And as long as it was some other group of people unrelated to their daily life that disappeared in the night, they would keep their heads down and their mouths shut. I would point out that the communists were very careful and deliberate in ensuring that the actions of the internal police were made valid through law and rationalized as a part of class struggle 
Such laws were left so open to interpretation that literally any evil committed could later be vindicated. Man-made law is often a more powerful weapon than any gun, tank, plane, or missile because it triggers apathy within the masses. For some strange reason, when corrupt governments legalize their criminality through legislation or executive decree, the citizenry suddenly treats that criminality as legitimate and excusable. Yeah, really, what the hell is wrong with all you people out there, huh? Oh, they wrote it down. Well, there you go. We've got to follow it because why, by golly, they wrote it down. Why do you think that jackass in the White House said, I got a pen and a phone? Because he recognizes all he's got to do is write some crap down and you'll all fall on your knees and pucker up as well as you can. Oh, man. Anyway, we got a caller. Go ahead, caller. From Washington. Jay from Washington. Somehow sounds familiar. Yes, sir. Well, you touched on something, and that's why I called in. You mentioned that uh, people are afraid to, to talk about it. Just recently you said that. Yeah. And I'll go further. Well, I'll go further. People aren't just afraid to talk about it. They're even afraid to hear about it. They're even afraid to listen to the truth, let alone talk about it. That's how deep the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, that, that's, how, that's how damaged we are as a society, is that people don't even want to hear the truth, let alone talk about it. Talk about it? Are you kidding me? They would never do that. But they don't even want to hear about it anymore, Frank. That is how far we have fallen. How many people do you think listen to your show? How many people do you think listen to my show or any other show on the Internet or anywhere that talks about the truth? The numbers are dwindling and the numbers are fading and they're very small. That's a problem. And it's a frustrating problem. Well, guess what, Jay? Everybody's numbers are falling. Not as many people listen to that windbag Rush Limbaugh or that lion shill Alex Jones than they used to. Okay? Do you know why? It's not because people are scared to listen to them. It's because there's too many choices out there now. When I don't mean too many as a bad thing, I mean it's just a fact. There's so many choices out there, I don't have to listen to you. Maybe back in the old days when there was only 100 talk show hosts in the whole country, at 3 o'clock or whenever it is anybody's on, I have to listen to you because, well, there's only a choice of 10 other people. I don't like them, so I like you better than the other 10, so I listen to you, and you got a big audience. Well, guess what? Now I can listen to 30,000 other people, maybe 100,000 if I count all their podcasts and YouTubes and everything else. Okay, that's that's, that's valid. NBC, CBS. Fox News, all of them are losing market share. You know why? Because the market has been diluted. That's the, re- that's the that. reality. Uh, that's that's that what is, all yes. the little devices that we all love to carry around sure. and use. So, you know what? If you've got one of those, I have one now. We're all to blame. We've all fallen into it. Do you listen to anything on the Internet? Then you're to blame. Do you watch YouTube? You're to blame. This is what's happened. This is just the reality. Does this mean choices are bad? I don't think they're bad. But you know what? The reality of it is you're not going to get the audiences you were going to get 30 years ago. 
Oh, okay. Uh, understandable. I understand. guess what, Jay? 30 years ago, yes. you would have never got on the air. I would have never got on the air. Well, I beg to differ. Okay. At least on your part. Okay, now, now, hold on, Frank. I'm about to blow some smoke up your tailpipe. Okay. I beg to differ. I've said it before, and I've said it numerous times, and I'll say it again. I, I recall vividly saying a long time ago in the chat room that you, you could make millions on mainstream radio because of your commentary, as, because of how good your commentary is. You're, you have, like, this genuine truth. You know, you, you, you don't pull punches, and, and you're not tr- – and you, yourself – don't ever try and blow smoke. But Jay, you don't here's, try and the, here's favor the sad with reality. Okay, here's the sad reality. I do appreciate that. And even if I believed it, it doesn't matter because, see, the people with the money that make things happen like radio and TV and such, they don't want to hear it, Jay. I, I know, I, and that's the part that's the problem. So we have two things, okay? We have a problem. We have the fact, we have this deal where, okay, 20 years ago, I use Art Bell as an example all the time because it happened right here, right in front of me. I watched it happen. Here's a guy stuck in some jerkwater Nevada guy talking about UFOs and stupid crap, goes on the air in the middle of the night on, on satellite, uh, you know, C-band satellite, and all of a sudden he becomes a phenomena. Well, yeah, well, I mean, he was better than George Norrie. I mean, if that's oh, yeah, well, I, okay, I, I agree with that. <laughs> but, you know, the thing okay. is, the thing is, though, the world has changed. Back in those days, if you could get on C-band and you had a decent schedule, uh, a decent signal, you could get in a time slot. And if you had a good show and good content, you know, some program director out of some radio station somewhere would pull you down and put you out and if he got a good response you had a you had a radio okay now don't you think for you okay now let's come back to you don't you think if you were to i don't know whatever however you it happens to get on some and i hesitate to use the word mainstream because i i don't want to denigrate avr but don't you think that your commentary would no I, more to I know where you're going, than... Jay, and I, as much as I appreciate your opinion about me that way, uh, no, I don't, because the reality of it is those days are gone, and the reason those days are gone is because those independent radio stations are all gone. Now, right. those call letters are still out there, and those radio stations may still be pumping out a signal, but their programming is directed to them by a corporate office somewhere in Virginia. But okay, but bottom line is they just want to make money. So you said you knew where I was going, and I guess I have to say maybe I, help me out because, or maybe you don't know where I was going. I still think now just follow me, and mm-hmm. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse. I still think your commentary. You just pick any one of your shows. Any one of your shows. I think that would appeal to a broad audience, or at least a broader audience, on, again, not the denigrate AVR, but let's just say now you're mainstream, and let's just say it happened. And let's just say, and they probably wouldn't, you know, the producers or the, uh, the corporate people, they probably, man, who is this guy? But we don't like him, and he's not, you know, he's offensive and blah, 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 but he's, we're hitting shekels, man. Oh, my goodness. Are we... 
getting shekels. People are really listening to this guy. That's all I'm trying to say. But their shekels don't come from people listening. Their shekels come from advertisers. So under that scheme of things, I get on there with my commentary, and one day I decide to start slamming on aspartame or MSG. Or, oh, guess what? That corporate program director is going to get a call. No more shekels for you if we ever hear that again. Then I get a call, and they say, listen, Frank, don't ever mention aspartame again. Don't ever Ah. mention MSG again. And the list goes on and on and on of all the phone calls I'd be getting about what I can't talk about. And you know what? After a while, if I played that game and went along with it, my commentary wouldn't be worth everybody cover your ears shit. That's what my commentary would be worth, just like Alex Jones's commentary is worth, just like Glenn Beck's commentary is worth, just like Rush Limbaugh's commentary is worth. That's what all their commentary is worth, because they've been told these are the things you do not talk about. Right, and that's a, and see, and okay, that's a problem, and see, maybe we're getting somewhere, but so then... Shouldn't the truth always prevail, or doesn't the truth always prevail? Don't people want the truth? And eventually, shouldn't it always prevail? I mean, lies well, and deception. You know, I and agree all with you. I agree with is, you. I, is, is, I, I agree with you, Jay. And I do believe people do want the truth. And I think, you know what? I think Donald Trump is a good example of that because for the tiny little bit of truth he says, he's getting a lot of mileage out of it. And he doesn't say well, that much truth. He just says more truth than the other candidates. That's all. That's that's a that's that's yeah. That's a pretty good analysis, and I would agree. You know, but I mean, but he's getting a lot. Hey, he's doing pretty good with it. So yeah, but you see, you got to understand, AVR and the other alternative media's is the only way that's getting out. You ain't getting on NBC and Fox News and the main what we consider the mainstream. I understand. I understand. I I do. And the only reason, listen, the only reason isn't because, you know, people on alternative radio aren't good enough. Because there's tons of people good enough. But the fact is, the advertisers control the content. That's the bottom line. Right. But, I mean, now, again, not to be difficult to extrapolate it. But, see, the advertisers want to make money, too. And if they're saying, hey, get that Frank off the air, man, Uh, you know, Jiffy Lube calls, get him off the air. We don't like what he says. Then all of a sudden people aren't showing up at Jiffy Lube. They're saying, hey, man, you you pulled sponsorship from from Frank? Are you kidding me? Then they're going to have to somebody, somebody. They don't, because it it only goes so far. Somebody's going to catch up to that. Yeah, but, yeah, somebody will. Somebody will, but I'll tell you what, you see, your idea of what happening is Frank gets to go on the air and goes, well, we just lost Jiffy Lube as a sponsor because they don't like what I said. Uh, Okay, but that's not what happens. What happens is Frank has to shut up, never talk about it, or get off the air with no announcement whatsoever. So then I can go start my own podcast and start telling everybody, hey, I used to be a mainstream commentator. Now I'm on this podcast. You know why? Because I said this, that, and the other thing, and Jiffy Lube pulled their thing, and, it's a, and I could tell the whole story. But it's not going to be on their radio stations. Okay. I, I, yeah, that part I understand. That's yeah. how it works. I mean, that's just how it works. And that is how cut and dry, black and white, it really is. 
And and people think, oh no, he's you know, oh Rush Limbaugh sneaks in the truth. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He'll tell you the BS that he's allowed to say in a way that makes it sound like he's telling you something really important. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I've smoked Rush Limbaugh out, you know, for twenty years ago. And I only uh, use him as an example. Right, but I understand, and he's well, he's a good example to use because. I, well, well, probably the most successful. But but at the same time, you mentioned it. He is way less popular than he was. Sure. Uh, but everybody you know. is. Okay. I, but I everybody is, know, and I'll tell you what: it has the mainstream media in, in a in a in a panic. Because you see, okay, look, alternative radio has always been basically on the fringe, right? And our numbers well, go term. our numbers go up and they go down depending on how bad things are in the country usually. That's true. Things are bad, true. we're popular. Things are That's good, we're not so finger popular. finger of fate. Right. right. You know, I but, understand, yeah. And and so, you know, we're used to that in the alternative media, but you see the networks, the mainstream, they were used to having basically complete domination. And they're losing that, and they're not comfortable with it. That's because I would classify them as the fringe. You mentioned, you know, internet radio or whatever. Fringe. Well, I, I, my opinion is they always were. They were the fringe, not the people out here, you know, talking about the truth. And I hesitate to say preaching the truth, but you get my gist, commentating yeah. on the truth, whatever. We're mainstream, I believe. Well, we're get, you know, from, from the two surveys, from the two surveys that Al brought to the air last night, we're the majority. And that was very good, yeah. And I watched, I, that was like a blog post, actually, of his, and I redid that. Mm-hmm. I reposted that on my own blog. And it's yeah. very telling. So, we're, so that is out there. We're we the majority. Into, we are. Well, we're the silent majority, apparently, you know, uh, for the most part. Because yet we, yet we linger in this, like, bowl of that word you used earlier that I won't repeat ah. on the air. Starts with an S and ends with a T. So I'm just frustrated, mm, Frank, and that's see. why I called in. Yeah, yeah. Let's. Yeah. Come on, so, man. Help out I, all the public school people. S H I T. You know. I won't. Anyway, Jay. It. You know what? We're out of time, but I do appreciate I what you had to say, and I understand what you're saying. But you know, being in an industry is different than like watching an industry. Because you you understand things that, and it's not because you understand, it's just because you've been around it and you see it, it's familiarity, and it's just like you take it for granted by being in it that this is the way it is and everybody knows. Well, everybody doesn't know, but, you know, it's just one of those things. But that is what's happened in in radio, and well, it happened long ago in television, but, I mean, in radio, it only happened in the, uh, well, Reagan right after Reagan, man, because what Reagan did was he, there used to be rules, you see, that you can only own so many radio stations, so many newspapers, so many, you know, any one company could only own so many in a geographical area, right? Well, right. Reagan said, oh, let's, let's deregulate. deregulate. So, well, he was the master at deregulation, and deregulation is a good thing sometimes. Not Sometimes the way Reagan it did it. The way Reagan did it, Reagan, what, he, he, he lied to everybody when he said deregulation. What he meant right, was consolidation. Right. 
Exactly. Yeah, and monopolization. I yeah. get it. Yeah. You know, yeah, so they, uh, they took away all the uh, the antitrust laws have been gutted, just like Posse Comitatus has been gutted. Yeah. You know, all these laws yeah. that were there to protect the American people have been gutted, and all the laws yeah. to enslave the American people have been enhanced. Uh, amen. And to that, I know you're at the end of your show. And you I am, over. and I do but. thank you for calling in. Call in any time, Jay. Jay's show is on... Uh, it's going to be on Wednesdays now. He changed from Tuesday to Wednesday, so take a note, folks. If you've been listening on Tuesdays, you're going to want to do in on uh, Wednesday. And he has expanded that show to two hours. He's still on Thursday like always, folks. So, you know, now you've got even more Jay Shanahan on, well, on Wednesday you do. But overall, now three hours a week. So be sure to tune in. Plus, next week we'll have a new show, too. I'm going to announce that tomorrow. As always, thanks for listening, folks. Big red barn. A 47 Ford bullet holes in the door broke down motor in the front yard. <laughs> I gotta have a mind to paint a plywood sign and nail it up on a knotted pine tree. Saying I was here first, this is my piece of dirt and your rambling don't rattle me. is that our nation is heading for disaster. From the threat of deadly viruses like avian flu to deadly chemtrails and much more. As confirmed by undercover investigative journalist Pamela Schubert, America is heading for deep internal crisis in the times to come. Isn't it a good idea to plan ahead? Nature's Defense Premium Ionic Silver is one of the finest survival products on the market today. In fact, to prove it to you, we will send you a 16-ounce bottle of Nature's Defense Premium Ionic Silver absolutely free. This fine product can retail for $30 in health food stores everywhere. But Nature's Defense offers you Ionic Silver at rock bottom prices. And your first bottle is free if you call now. 1-260-562-3145. That's 1-260-562-3145. Or contact us at naturesdefense at hotmail.com. And tell them you heard about it on the American Voice Radio Network. Don't be caught without it. And I was asked to narrate this film because the filmmakers knew that my wife had died of cancer and I had dealt in a deeply personal way with the dilemma their film addresses. Choosing a therapy for her was confusing, paralyzing, anguishing, sometimes enraging. On the one hand, the doctors held little hope that they would have a cure for her. On the other hand, they were resistant to the many alternative approaches. They seemed to have a definite and sincere point of view and yet they seemed to know so little about these other therapies. I had to wonder, if a cancer cure were discovered outside of formal medical institutions, would these doctors ever know about it? Would it ever reach the general public? Of course it would, you might say, but consider this. There are scores of alternative cancer clinics around the world claiming high success rates. Yet most of these treatments have been banned in the United States or driven out of the country without an investigation. Why? The dissident practitioners say that it has to do with medical politics, that their medical point of view is being suppressed. 
There is a disturbingly similar pattern that actually does run through most of their stories. To get to the heart of the dilemma, we have chosen to look in depth into one of these alternative clinics because the story of the Hoxie cancer treatment is a classic case history of these medical politics. Many patients believe the Hoxie treatment cures cancer. She had one breast removed and then later they found cancer in the other breast and they wanted to take the other one off and she wouldn't allow it. But of course she was getting worse and like I said she heard her family planning her funeral and she got up out of her sick bed and said take me to Mexico. So they brought her down here on a wheelchair and now she, she looks all great and she feels great and she's fine. And they had given her just a few weeks to live. My father died of cancer, my brother-in-law died of cancer, one of our best friends at Yakima died of cancer, and they were they all went the operation, chemotherapy, radiation route. They are all dead. But the people who, we know so many people who have come here, and they're still alive. I decided that it, I was not going to take chemotherapy, I was not going to take radiation. I told my doctor that. I said, I'll die first. I just soon go out. But no, none of that. Because I've had friends I, I've seen that have happened to them. So but when they mentioned Hoxie to me, I lit up. I said, hey, let's go. without a scientific investigation. Hoxie nurse Mildred Nelson took the treatment from Texas to Tijuana in 1963. Her biomedical center was the first alternative clinic to go from the U.S. to Mexico. She has been treating cancer with Hoxie for 40 years. She claims impressive results. We still run approximately 80% cure rate. And I know you're not supposed to say cure for at least five years, but I've known some of them 40 years that are still surviving. So I guess maybe we should still say a survival rate, but nevertheless, they have no problems. So we assume they no longer have cancer because we cannot pick it up. An 80% cure rate? If Mildred Nelson is even partially right, the number of people dying needlessly is a scandal. But her claim is unproven because a definitive scientific test has never been done. But we do know what the medical profession has achieved in its celebrated war on cancer. We've lost the war on cancer. Since the 1950s, the outlook for most cancer patients has remained the same. A one in three chance of living for five years after diagnosis using conventional therapy, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, drugs. The fact is that today, two out of three American cancer patients will be dead before five years. If conventional therapy has such limited results, why isn't the medical profession willing to investigate alternative approaches? Apparently, there is more than a political border between country and country, but also a philosophical border that these doctors will not let their patients cross. And it's bad. This doesn't work on behalf of the patient. This is a battle, apparently, between them and us. And we don't want a battle to exist. This should be united work, you know, working together. 
to bring people's health. In a fight for their lives, some patients cross those borders. Each day, a van full of hopeful cancer patients travels from San Diego, California to Tijuana, Mexico. Doctors in the U.S. classify 90% of them as terminal cases. Over the years, thousands of such patients have said the Hoxie treatment cured them. Well, I had a melanoma in my arm, and they operated on my arm, but they said I had to have chemotherapy and uh, radiation. And I was too weak for that, my husband thought. So he said, no, we're going to the clinic. And I have gotten real good results from coming to the clinic. I know when I first started, I only weighed 111 pounds, and now look at me. And now I haven't been back for five years for any treatment on my arm. I just come back now for a checkup. When Mildred did get the cancer out, it was like a, a ball, hard ball. In fact, when she dropped it in the trash can, I thought it was a golf ball because it bounced. It was at least the size of the golf ball yeah. larger. Yes, it went up into this muscle and it's tied down for scar tissue now. Because as I said, it extended up in this muscle. We just took out a huge big face yeah. here. About two years ago, actually two years ago to the date, found out I had cancer and the doctor recommended mastectomy. So we went into the hospital and had a mastectomy. And then he suggested that perhaps I need chemotherapy once a week for a year. Well, at the time, I also had spots on my liver, and when I recovered from my mastectomy, I was going to probably have liver surgery. But we decided against the chemotherapy because we thought that it wasn't such a good idea, really. Meanwhile, friends of ours drove down to tell us about this clinic, Biomed Clinic, that she had found. My husband and I decided we would investigate, and I think that's the best decision we ever made. My surgeon knows I go. He didn't, probably didn't like the idea, so we just kind of ignore the fact that I come. Although he himself admits now that my liver is completely cleared up. No cancers, sales at all. make you ill, your hair doesn't fall out like chemo, and uh, it's almost too good to be true, you might think, but it does work. It consists of herbs and potassium iodide, and uh, the diet is very, very easy to follow. They start with a diet. They're not allowed pork, vinegar, tomatoes. 
carbonated drink, alcohol, bleached flour, bleached sugar, and the salt is really limited. Probably the greatest success comes with the patient's attitude. And when they come in the front door saying, I'm in here to get some medicine because I'm going to get well, then I'm just as happy as they are. And when they come through the door saying, well, I don't think anything's going to help, but they wanted me to do this. You can't make them get well. They have to want to do it themselves. A non-toxic herbal tonic, a nutritional program, an attitudinal approach to healing. Harmless though it seems, this treatment ignited one of the most bitter controversies in medical history. It started a cancer war between organized medicine and one man, founder Harry Hoxie. The trouble began with what seemed like good news. And we now have in our files and our records many, many thousands of case histories and records, pathological proof, x-ray photographic studies that we do positively cure cancer, both internal and external. And we now have uh, records proving that the cure stands up for many, many years, as far back as over 20 years here in Texas. I think, my God, he's telling me the biggest lies I ever heard. This couldn't be right. And I'd listen to this for a few days, and finally I'd pick out the biggest one I thought he'd told me. And I'd go check. And when I got checking, it was right. The man hadn't lied about it at all. And finally I realized he didn't have to lie. He was telling the truth, but it was the wildest stories I'd ever heard in my life when it came to medicine. He had this great skill as a salesman. Uh, clearly, however, he had no belief that this uh, treatment was um, was uh, useful. He was a he was a uh, great liar. You know, it takes lots of nerve to put up a big, nice place in a big city like Dallas and hold yourself out as being able to furnish medicines that'll cure cancer. Uh, it takes nerve to do that. I don't believe a man that knew he was lying about it could do it. He was doing his thing and uh, he had no business doing it. In fact, Hoxie met both the legal and the uh, dictionary definition of a quack. One who pretends to medical skill which he does not possess. It was easy for the medical profession to paint Hoxie as a quack. He fit the image perfectly. This book, entitled You Don't Have to Die, has, is filled with dynamite. In fact, it should have been uh, printed on asbestos paper. I give you names, times, dates, names of doctors, names of institutions. The doctors labeled Hoxie the worst cancer quack of the century. But Hoxie supporters called him an effective healer, persecuted by a medical trust. But up to now, they have never proven that this treatment don't cure cancer. The ex-coal miner with an eighth grade education became a legend in his own time. According to the Hoxie legend, the remedies were discovered by his great-grandfather experimenting on a sick horse. Hoxie said his father was the first to try the medicines on people. 
He gave young Harry the formulas with a deathbed wish to make the treatment available to people whether or not they could pay. He insisted it carry the Hoxie name. Prophetically, he warned the boy against the high priest of medicine who would fight him jealously. It didn't take long. Hoxie started his first clinic in Illinois in 1924, and he immediately incurred the wrath of organized medicine. He was arrested more times than any other man in medical history. Yet by the 1950s, the Hoxie Clinic of Dallas, Texas, was the largest privately owned cancer center in the world. Hoxie Clinics reached through 17 states. Endorsing the treatment were senators, judges, and even some doctors. Two federal courts upheld its therapeutic value. If the treatment was worthless, how did it gain so much support? To claim a cure for cancer is to invite evaluation. While the medical profession turned its back on Hoxie, numerous individuals did make personal investigations. These experiences repeatedly turned skeptics into believers. Among them was Esquire magazine writer James Wakefield Burke, who in 1939 began covering the Hoxie story. My boss, Arnold Gingrich, one day said, why don't you go down to Texas and let's expose this uh, fellow. He's getting too big. And the American Medical Association liked to put him out of business and said, you go down and get acquainted with him and says, uh, we'll do a couple of pieces on him and put an end to this. So it was an assignment. I came to Texas. I expected to stay about a day, get my information and leave. I became fascinated. I stayed for six weeks. Every day, Harry would pick me up, bring me to the clinic. He was a fascinating man. He was a highly intelligent, but a rather crude talking, not in an obscene or vulgar way. We'd come in in the morning, and he would put his arm around these old men and women, say, Dad, them doctors been cutting you up. Says, I ain't gonna let them sons of bitches kill you. You're gonna live. And he'd treat them, and I'd watch him treat them. They'd get better and begin to get well. So I wrote an outline for a piece I call, which I called The Quack Who Cured Cancer. And I sent it to back to the editors, but uh, I guess it was too hot for him. It never came out. Assistant District Attorney Al Templeton was more than a skeptic. He arrested Hoxie more than 100 times in two years. But each time, Hoxie was prepared. He always carried about $10,000 and rolled in his pocket. Well, they'd pick him up and put him in jail. He'd bail himself out. Once in a while, he would deliberately stay in jail a few days. He knew what would happen. His old men and women that he had cured would come around the jail, bring baskets of chicken, home-cooked pies, pray and sing. The jailers would turn him out, save themselves in the embarrassment. Patients refused to testify against Hoxie, so none of D.A. Templeton's charges resulted in conviction. But the prosecutor was determined to stop him. Then his own brother, Mike, got terminal cancer and secretly went to Hoxie. When Mike Templeton got well, Al Templeton gave Hoxie the credit. Hoxie's prosecutor became his lawyer. He was later elected county judge. Suddenly, Hoxie had friends at the Dallas courthouse. 
like James Burke and Al Templeton, Mildred Nelson had heard Hoxie was a fraud. Then the young nurse's mother developed uterine cancer. Despite intensive radiation treatment, the disease recurred within a year. The doctors had done all they could. Dad asked me, said, do you want to go to Dallas with me? And drive for me, and I said, uh, oh, you're going to get some parts for the Caterpillar. No, go and see the doctor. What doctor? The cancer doctor. I said, Doc, Dad, we're going to the best there is. Just forget that. You're going to see a damn quack. And he said, well, I'm going down anyway. If you don't want to go, it's fine. And I said, no, I'll go with you. So we get down there, and he introduced me. Tells her I'm a nurse. And he said, well, the doctors and nurses working in there. Go in and talk to anybody you want to. There's the files. Get in them if you want to. And would you like a job? And Dad looked up and said, she's already said you was a damn quack. I didn't feel very good about that. Well, I thought, well, I'll talk Mom out of it, you know, and get them away from there, and then I could talk to them. Well, I couldn't. They didn't budge. So I thought, well, I'll go down there and go to work and see what's going on. Then I can get them out of it. I called Harry and asked him if he still needed a nurse. I sure do. Be here in the morning. And by the end of the year, I began to realize, Jesus does help. Mom had gotten better. Until this day is alive and as sassy as can be. I would have to live them. Two of them, local doctors. And then the doctors in Fort Worth have also passed away. And the nurses, all except two, have passed away. As far as I know, I've outlived all of them. More and more people kept supporting Hoxie's claims of a cure. His boldest promoter was Christian evangelist Gerald Winrod. His radio broadcast reached millions of listeners with sensational reports of Hoxie's mounting successes. I wish to begin this broadcast by reading for you what I regard as a very important statement, and I quote, Judge W.L. Thornton, this is the second jury of 12 men that is found in my court that the Hoxie treatment cures cancer. Ten doctors found that the number of cures reaches into the thousands. Former United States Senator Thomas studied a large number of cures. I had made my own investigation, had satisfied myself that cancer was really being cured by the Hoxie method. This humble reporter can only say, God bless these quacks. The only quacks who are curing cancer today. Despite far-reaching support, Hoxie struggled to keep his clinic open. Word of his trials again reached writer James Burke. Still working for Esquire 15 years later, Burke had covered World War II and remained in Berlin serving as the top advisor to General Lucius B. Clay. But the writer was to return to Texas. They wanted to put me on the payroll. I didn't want that because I realized once I was on the payroll, my effectiveness for him would diminish or become nil because I'd be just as guilty as he was. I said, no, I, I don't need this, so I believe in what you're doing, and uh, I believe you cure cancer, and I believe these people unjustly persecuting you, and I'll help you all I can. 
So from then on, we became a pretty good team. The once skeptical reporter signed on as Hoxie's publicity director. skeptical reporter visited the Hoxie Clinic recently. This time it was in Mexico and Mildred Nelson was in charge. When I first came here to the Hoxie Clinic, I fully expected to find the worst, most outrageous form of quackery and fraud. This is what I've been led to believe went on here by the medical authorities back in the States. Instead, I found something surprisingly and entirely different. Uh, when I first came here, however, and met Mildred Nelson, she didn't have a lot of time for me. She was too busy with her patients. So she told me to talk to some patients if I wanted to really find out the story of Poxy today. And over the next week or 10 days, I did that. I talked to at least 100 current Hoxie patients suffering from a variety of cancers, many of them in terminal stages. It's hard to summarize uh, 100 or so individual stories in a few sentences, but I found that virtually all of the patients I talked with uh, had evidence that they had been helped and also that they had a renewed sense of hope for the future. But a new cancer treatment needs more than personal investigations to gain acceptance. It needs a formal scientific review. And when I say to you, all I want is to have them come here. The American Medical Association, the Pure Food and Drug, the federal government, anybody, come here and make an investigation. And if I don't prove to them beyond any question of it out that our treatment is superior to radium X-ray and surgery, then I will lock the doors of this institution forever. The medical establishment, if you will, felt that any effort on their part to either uh, go and review the work or the material that uh, Mr. Hoxie might present to them would do little more than give credibility to the program and would not, in fact, accomplish anything meaningful. The doctors claim that uh, they already knew from their medical education that his remedies were uh, had no efficaciousness at all, was no cure. They were just sought in their ways and adamant in their beliefs. He's like all the rest of them. They all say they're un treated unfairly, that medicine won't pay attention to them. And it's true because medicine doesn't uh, or does know that their products are worthless. According to Hoxie, there was a more sinister reason the medical profession wouldn't investigate. His early fame in Illinois had soon reached the nearby Chicago headquarters of the American Medical Association. Hoxie said the AMA doctors invited him to demonstrate the treatment. Among them was Dr. Morris Fishbein, editor of the influential AMA journal. The alleged test case was a terminal cancer patient, Police Sergeant Thomas Mannix.
according to Hoxie, the day after his successful demonstration, a high AMA official asked to buy the rights to the formulas. The alleged offer would have given all rights to a group of doctors, including Dr. Fishbein. Mildred Nelson recalls Hoxie's version of the story. And they were in the process of drawing up the contract and everything that they would take the formula. And he said, you have to put in here that no one can be turned down because of the lack of funds. And they said, oh, no. And he said, yes, this is a promise I made my father on his deathbed. This must go in it. You have nothing to do with this. We'll charge what we want to. And he said, you can't. You have to keep it in reach of everyone. This must be done. And they said, no, we'll charge what we want to and treat who we want to. You have nothing to say about it. He said, well, then you don't get the formula. And that's when the battle started and went for the rest of the years of his life. Did AMA doctors try to suppress a cancer cure they couldn't control? Hoxie's shocking charges became shrouded in unprovable mystery when the AMA denied the entire incident. Evidence confirms only the medical case, not the circumstances. But one thing was certain. Hoxie had made a very powerful enemy. By crossing swords with Dr. Fishbein, he alienated the most influential figure in medicine. Dr. Fishbein held a unique position. As journal editor, he controlled the main income-producing organ of the AMA, and thus the organization. He also published the accepted standards of medical practice. After the Chicago incident, Dr. Fishbein blackballed Hoxie by branding him a quack in the journal. But he went even further. The journal accused him of using brutal external pastes that ate fatally into patients' blood vessels. It commented that Hoxie's most enthusiastic supporter was the local undertaker. The AMA attack was relentless. Dr. Fishbein and Hoxie would battle each other for 25 years to come in a drama of national dimensions. But rather than settling the dispute through scientific means, they played it out in the media. headquarters in Chicago, vigilant against quackery is Dr. Morris Fishbein. There is no serum, drug, or combination of drugs that we know that will definitely cure cancer. Hoxie competed for public attention to gain an investigation. He became a master of publicity, promoting his reputed cures far and wide. His stock in trade was the patient testimonial. to an Iowa radio station, his testimonials reached millions. Owner of radio station KTNT was Norman Baker, who also provided Hoxie with a large clinic. 
Baker was a catalog salesman and former stage hypnotist of unsavory reputation. Hoxie's provocative broadcast to bust the medical trust soon drew 300 patients a day. Among them was his most fantastic case. The top of Mandis Johnson's skull was rotting flesh, and rumors circulated that he had already died. But in front of 32,000 spectators, Hoxie performed the resurrection of Mandis Johnson. Hoxie and a doctor removed the now-dead tumor that composed the top of Johnson's skull. Johnson would live on for 30 years and credit Hoxie with his miraculous cure. Even this spectacle of publicity did not get Hoxie an investigation. Instead, it drew an angry blast from Dr. Fishbein in the journal. The next night, gunfire sprayed KTNT during Hoxie's broadcast. He charged Dr. Fishbein with ordering his destruction, but again he had no proof. Soon their battle would reach federal level. When Hoxie approached the National Cancer Institute for an investigation, the agency refused. The NCI said his medical records were incomplete. Hoxie said doctors refused to supply necessary records because of Dr. Fishbein's influence. The government concluded it would be a waste of public funds to investigate. Having struck oil in Texas, Hoxie offered to pay for a test himself. His challenges were putting Dr. Fishbein under public pressure, and the doctor fought back hard in the public arena. But when he wrote blood money for the Hearst Sunday papers, he went too far. Now Fishbein said, like a ghoul feasting on the bodies of the dead and the dying. And that is why Mr. Hoxie sued Mr. Uh, Dr. Fishbein. Hoxie sued Dr. Fishbein and the Hearst newspaper empire for libel and slander. He didn't seem to stand a chance. The nation's most notorious quack faced a who's who of American medicine. Surprisingly, Harry Hoxie became the first man ever to win a judgment against Dr. Fishbein and the AMA. And how did he win? He brought in, day after day, he brought in patients who said, my doctor told me that I had cancer and I was going to die within an X number of days. And I came down here, Dr. Hoxie cured me. Here I am. That was two years ago or three years or three. Patient after patient that came and made this testimony. It was very impressive. The Hearst Fishbein defense tried to exclude the testimony of Hoxie's allegedly cured patients. The individual endorsement, if you will, patient endorsement, is really not the best way to evaluate a medical treatment or a medical procedure. Uh, because uh, too oftentimes these individuals are not knowledgeable enough in even their own health or what has transpired uh, to realize that uh, they're not the ones to make the best assessment of this. The credibility of Hoxie's patients was on trial. But so were the credentials of Dr. Morris Fishbein, who made astonishing admissions. Dr. Fishbein failed anatomy in medical school. He went to work at the Journal before completing his internship. In fact, he never treated a patient or practiced a day of medicine in his entire career. The leader of medicine's quack attack was increasingly on the defensive. Critics charged the AMA with being a doctor's union setting medical policy in its own interests. Two federal courts agreed it was a monopoly. Dr. Fishbein had to resign from his post at the AMA. 
But the Hoxie Fishbein trials held an even more shocking revelation. Dr. Fishbein admitted in court that Hoxie's supposedly brutal pastes actually did cure external cancers. Uh, there was a man up in the University of Wisconsin uh, who did some experimental work on skin cancer with this material, using very minute amounts of it and using it several times very carefully. And he reported on it, and it was reported in our journal that it did have merit. Mildred Nelson uses two forms of Hoxie external medicines, a yellow powder and a red paste. They are an old kind of folk medicine called ascaratics. This is the yellow powder that we used. Selective for malignant tissue only, it will not bother the other. Only the malignant part dies. Selective. It is used to dissolve large tumors. This is true escarotic. Your escarotic is something that burns. Actually, it is a burning uh, product that will, in one sense of the word, eat or destroy the skin. Or wherever. You put it on an area and that area will come out. The red paste contains bloodroot. Bloodroot is an herb whose use goes back centuries. Here's the bloodroot, one that Hoxie was using for external treatment of cancer. It's a common wildflower here in the eastern deciduous forest. The Indians did use this for external cancerous conditions, and this was picked up early by uh, the traveling doctors of European descent. And this, with zinc oxide and several other herbs, plus or minus, showed up in many, many different formulas for external cancers. So many formulas, in fact, that one would suspect it must have some, uh, some positive effect. Sanguinarine, by the way, is another of the alkaloids that did show some anti-tumor activity in the NCI experimental studies. Even though the AMA admitted that the external treatment works, Hoxie's successes only escalated the war. He soon faced another determined opponent, the federal government. The Food and Drug Administration said his internal treatment was a fake. The federal agency contended that his supposed internal cures fell into three categories. FDA went out and uh, looked at these cases one by one, found uh, evidence that uh, essentially uh, a good portion of them, uh, there was no evidence they ever had cancer. Uh, there is also the business of persons with cancer having had um, treatment like uh, therapeutic x-ray, the effects of which are delayed in many cases. And during that time, they will go to these people, like Hoxie, who take advantage of a cure they did not perform.
The third category would be the people he treated who had cancer to start with, who had cancer to end with, uh, the end often being death. Well, the original diagnosis was called lymphosarcoma. And this surgeon in Pittsburgh operated on me, and he cut me open, and he looked, and when he saw what he saw, he closed me right up again. It was lymphosarcoma, but it involved two tumors intertwined around my aorta, lesions in the right lung, a blockage of what they call the superior vena cava, which is a vein leading into the heart, and it was in all my lymph glands. So he closed me right up, and his verdict was, one year to live. Now, they did give me 30 cobalts, but the verdict was still one year to live. So I thought I was going downhill. I know I was going downhill. And when the Hoxie was presented to me by a total stranger, I said to my husband, I'm going to try this. And if I'm still here six months from now, I'm going back. And if I'm not, what did I lose? A plane fare? A couple hundred dollars? So I did. I went. I went to Dallas, and it was available. And I'm still here 20 years from now to tell my story. And I'm positive it's the Hoxie that has kept me here. But he was never investigated except in a criminal type of a way to see what he might be doing wrong. The food and drug have always been famous for harassing the Hoxie patients in one manner or another. Usually doing it to find something to harass Harry with. Go to people's houses, take their medicine when it was delivered to them. Talk to them, tell them they were doing wrong. And but they didn't investigate anything except to do an underhanded work to try to find something detrimental. Well, what about this uh, ulcer of mine, Mr. Oakwood? I've been afraid that it might turn to cancer. Oh. Would your stuff help that? Might be cancer, huh? Well, now, look, there's one thing you've got to remember. You see, this stuff ain't no medicine. And then, of course, cancer, that's just another name for a bunch of sales that have gone wild. You know, because they're lacking something. But look, you give your body everything that it needs, and them cells are satisfied. Man, like it's not your condition going to improve. The FDA carried out a thorough investigation into possible criminal activities. The agency revealed that Hoxie had donated $80,000 to evangelist Gerald Winrod. They also produced records of secret checks to the writer from Man's Magazine after his first article. Moreover, several of Hoxie's advertised cures had since died of cancer. But when the government couldn't stop Hoxie in court, the FDA decided to take unprecedented action. Uh, sufferers from cancer, their families, physicians, and all concerned with the care of cancer patients are hereby advised and warned that the so-called Hoxie treatment for internal cancer has been found by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth District on the basis of evidence presented by the FDA to be worthless treatment. And uh, it went on. And it was so successful that um, uh, the FDA then went ahead and uh, issued it in a, in a poster form which was put up in post offices around the country. And one patient called and said, well, I'm going to get it down. The next one called and said, may I take it down? 
And then they begin calling, telling how they got them down. I'm swimming in blood now. They've done everything they possibly can to try to humiliate me. They've had me in court many, many times. But do I care about that? I'm not thinking about what they're doing to me. I'm thinking about the 12,000 patients who's under treatment observation here at this clinic. I'm only thinking of one thing, suffering humanity. But the government did more than just warn the public. Although federal prosecutors couldn't prove the treatment was worthless, they did outlaw it on technicalities like false labeling in interstate commerce. At one time, we had 17 clinics open across the country. Food and drug walked in the same day to every one of them and padlocked them. And no way did Harry have the money to fight that in court, state by state. Well, this 
I was still in the hospital from the surgery. And he sat down on the edge of my bed and he said, I have bad news for you. We did all we could. We took all the organs that we could take and it has gone into your liver and for that we can't do anything. Nearly all cancer is curable if we get it early enough. The real danger is delay. An operation now will save Mrs. Green's life. An operation? Many patients also fear surgery's traumatic effects. Well, what they wanted to do was, was first remove the teeth and uh, remove this half of my gum. Uh, they were talking originally about taking part of the jaw down here because they thought maybe it had worked its way in this area. Uh, to remove the upper palate. Uh, on the left side, when they did take the biopsy, the whole left side of my palate was swollen, almost down even with the bottom of my teeth. Um, they were going to start with that and just kind of work their way back to whatever they needed. <laughs> Oh, and I forgot to tell you that when they operated on my arm in Las Vegas, then they said that if the arm didn't heal within a year, they would have to amputate my arm. Radiation treatment is a modern form of another ancient method, burning the tumor. Well, what cured you? Radioactivity, Harry. Radioactivity? What's that got to do with medicine? Harry? They tell me the atom is adding a dimension to medical research and treatment that they never dreamed of a few years ago. Patients also fear radiation's dangerous side effects. One of these is that radiation can actually cause cancer. This is what we've been waiting for, Mr. Knox. Now, Mr. Knox, if you'll just step over here to the sink and drink this. Well, if you say so, Doctor. Looks harmless enough. <laughs> Just like water. Well, here's to my health. One of the doctors had, had as, an ex as a suggestion, had said something to the effect of removing the palate, most of the palate, and plating it in gold or putting one in in gold so that they could uh, do radiation in the rest of the areas of the mouth without affecting the upper, lower skull or upper brain or the brain area. And uh, so that was what one of them wanted to do. So. The use of radiation remains controversial even in medical circles. By itself, it is seldom considered a cure. It can be effective only on localized tumors. It does not address the fact that cancer is a systemic disease. Doctors took a systemic approach to cancer with the introduction of chemotherapy drugs in the 1950s. Chemotherapy is designed to kill cancer cells throughout the body. It is highly toxic, however, and it also kills healthy cells. Today, chemotherapy is often given in combination with surgery and radiation. I, like so many millions before me, started down the road of orthodox therapy. I knew no options were available. I, like the average person, believed everything my doctor told me. And I took 6,000 rads of radiation, which is the most you can take anymore. You run the risk of a total paralysis since the electron beam has to be focused to the spinal column. And we'd all sit together waiting to go into the room with a linear accelerator. 
where we were the only one in the room and everybody else was outside the room. But looking at the patients that had already started to receive chemotherapy, looking at them, the women had wigs, the complexion of the men and women were like a piece of white paper. Most of them had already lost weight. And it's terrifying. It really is. Because not only are you worried about dying, now you begin to worry about how it's going to be to die. And so when I started the chemotherapy, I'll never forget what it was like the first time, the first moment that the intravenous solution is shot into your veins because I took cytoxin as the first drug and it works instantaneously. The plunger is moved a sixteenth of an inch from the great big syringe and you turn on like this. And with cytoxin and my reaction to cytoxin, it was absolutely mind-blowing. It was like somebody hit me with a sledgehammer in the middle of my head and I got sick to my stomach all at the same time. But I want to make this very clear. If you really believe that these things worked and if the data supported the fact that cytoxin or cisplatin or any of the chemotherapeutic drugs, all of which are cytotoxic, all of which are indiscriminate killers of cells, all of which are carcinogenic, which is philosophically extraordinary. If you really thought that it was, would help you, then you'd go with it. Recently, John Cairns of Harvard University published a study in Scientific American about cancer chemotherapy drugs. He found that chemotherapy drugs benefit at most 5%, one out of 20 of the cancer patients they're given to, and yet chemotherapy is routinely given to 50% of American cancer patients. This is not to suggest that there's no role for conventional treatments in cancer therapy. Uh, even Mildred Nelson suggests that some of her patients occasionally have conventional treatment when it's absolutely necessary, but seeing then conventional treatments as options and not ends in themselves. Harry Hoxie generally opposed conventional treatment. But when he himself developed prostate cancer, he faced every patient's dilemma. He took his own tonic, but it didn't work for him. Finally, he had the very surgery he had criticized. He lived on for seven years. Hoxie died of heart failure in a weak liver, according to his physician, a noted neurologist. But the doctor was out of town when Hoxie actually died. Another doctor signed the death certificate. He wrote, carcinoma, prostate. Even in death, Harry Hoxie was marked by a conflict of medical opinion. Actually, the conflict of medical opinion between Hoxie and the doctors is a competition between two old medical traditions. In the 1800s, society sanctioned both approaches to healing. Patients had a choice of using either doctors called allopaths or natural healers called empirics or homeopaths. The two groups waged a bitter philosophical debate. The allopathic doctors called their approach heroic medicine. They believed the physician must aggressively drive disease from the body. They based their practice on what they considered scientific theory. 
The allopaths used three main techniques. They bled the body to drain out the bad humors. They gave huge doses of toxic minerals like mercury and lead to displace the original disease. They also used surgery, but it was a brutal procedure before anesthesia and infection control. Few patients were willing to have surgery. Most patients feared allopathic methods altogether. Satirists of the day remarked that with allopathic treatment, the patient died of the cure. Competing with the doctors were the empiric healers. Contrary to the doctors, they believed in stimulating the body's own defenses to heal itself. Instead of poisonous minerals, they used vegetable products and non-toxic substances in small quantities. They especially favored herbs learned from Native American and old European traditions. The empirics said they based their remedies not on theory, but on observation and experience. Satirists of the day added that with empiric treatment, the patient died of the disease, not the cure. The Hoxie herbs come from the empiric tradition. According to Hoxie, they had a surprising origin on an Illinois horse farm in 1840. As the story goes, John Hoxie was a veterinarian whose prized stallion got cancer. He put it out to pasture to die. But three weeks later, the tumor had stabilized. He observed the horse eating unusual plants, not part of its normal diet. Within a year, the horse was well. So John Hoxie began to experiment on animals with the herbs, and he added other popular home remedies. He claimed success and passed the formulas down through the family who eventually used them on people. But the idea that uh, uh, the American Indians or this person or that person or a veterinarian would would uh, accidentally stumble upon uh, uh, some herb that would cure uh, uh, a large number of products is uh, rather far-fetched. It's like the, uh, the uh, idea that if you put uh, three billion monkeys in a room, one of them might write a Shakespearean sonnet. And now the food and drug people want to know, what is Elixir X? What's in it? In every district station is a battery of crack chemists and microanalysts who fight the battle against filth and fraud. To one of these comes Elixirex. The magic formula to relieve sickness and pain turns out to be nothing more than a mixture of water and an alcoholic extract of certain herbaceous weeds that grow in profusion in the maker's backyard. A lot of modern folk tend to think that the herb medicines are just a bunch of weeds. I have a contrary view. I really think that the herbal medicines may be the wave of the future. The National Cancer Institute, with which I collaborated up until 1981, has screened over 10% of the plant species of the world, including all that are in the Hoxie formula. I might add that all of them showed up in Jonathan Hartwell's Plants Used Against Cancer. Jonathan Hartwell was a chemist employed by the National Cancer Institute who went through all the folk literature. Every one of the species in the Hoxie formula were covered in, in Hartwell, and the least citations that one got was, was three citations. Uh, some of them got over 30 citations in that particular book. Done while Hartwell was with the National Cancer Institute. Among the 50% of modern pharmaceutical drugs that are derived from plants are some cancer chemotherapy drugs. The periwinkle plant, which is common in many parts of the U.S., 
is the basis for vincristine and vinblastine, two drugs that are commonly used to treat leukemia. Let's suppose the hoxy herbs are worthless. Why do some patients appear to benefit from the treatment? The doctors have always said what hoxy was really offering was not medicine, it was hope. These people have one simple thing in common. They were frightened, confused, and did not know which way to turn for help. Fear is like a bullet, an idea fired into the mind that can fester and kill with deadly accuracy. Sentence a patient to death, remove all hope, and he will obediently roll over to wither away. Their tissue, their bones, their blood may be diseased, but their will to live is sound and healthy. That is why they are here. When the horror of this ugly scavenger casts its shadow, each one of these people has asked, what do you do? Where do you go? This place is their beacon of hope, the ray of light that might lead the way. He would come in and he'd put his arm around those old people and it, somehow he had the ability to inspire them to get well. And he must have triggered something in their psyche or in their phys physical makeup that perhaps, who knows, triggered some, uh, something in them that made them cure themselves. This clinic, just, just coming into the clinic, you get an entirely different sense of, say when you go to a cold, sterile hospital, nobody talks to anybody and everybody is afraid. It was really interesting when my husband remembered that. impressed me because I thought this was a psychiatric place. I, all these people <laughs> laughing and talking and they're supposed to be sick. You get to talking to them and they are. They've got very serious illnesses, but yet they're happy, they're talking. I just couldn't. Well, I never saw anything like it before. Because we have hope. We know cancer doesn't have to be a death sentence. And I think that's something that you see as you travel uh, around the world and visit alternative cancer clinics, you find in all of them there are some people who got better. Maybe it's only 10%. Uh, my comment generally is it's those people who, who have done it. I'm not sure that any of those therapies mean anything, but it has given them hope, instant group therapy, because a lot of people come together with those beliefs and you see something happen. Oh, they're all free-thinking people or they wouldn't even be here. And the majority of them make up their mind before they get here. This is what they're going to do, and they are going to win it. Well, these are the things. People who uh, think they've been treated, it's up here. It's in their minds and in their hopes, you might say, and their uh, unwillingness to face reality. And, and the answer is period. There is no false hope in the individual who has an illness. It is real, it is physiologic, and I have no difficulty giving it to people. Because I know people today who are alive because I said you don't have to die. If hope alone can produce cures from cancer, was Hoxie wrong in offering patients hope? But the doctor said he wasn't just offering hope, he was selling it. Mom, a quack is a quack, whether he comes from the South Seas or lives right here in the city. All he's interested in is taking money from people. Frankly, I think that he was uh, avaricious and in it for the money. It was the money. This is true of all of them. There is no charity in their hearts, believe me. Well, they've, they've probably been all the way back to the early man. There have been uh, people that would take other people's uh, clamshells or their dollars, but uh, uh, he was certainly a master at it. Yeah.
Unlike many other medical institutions, money is the last thing on the agenda. No patient is turned away because of his inability to pay. It is a policy handed down by Dr. Hoxie's father. I don't have to do this kind of work. I've got more oil wells than a lot of men call themselves big producers. I own my own building up with my own operation. I have enough money to burn up a wet mule. So what do I need with money from cancer sufferers? Any man that would traffic on sick, dying, limp, the lame and the blind caused from cancer is the worst scoundrel on earth. Now, I have seen relatives bring an old mother or an old aunt or an old granddad or somebody in that the doctors are given up to die. And after being interviewed, they said, we only had enough money to get here. Harry would personally take that old lady or that old woman in his car down the street. In those days, there were some boarding houses and small hotels. Put them in a boarding house or hotel, pay all their bills, treat them for six or eight weeks till they were cured, send them home, pay their bus fare back home or airplane fare with enough medicine to last and say, if you need to come back, write me a letter and I'll send for you. That, how can you not help a man like that? I came two years ago and I think I paid $1,600. And that was a lifetime fee. That's including all my doctor visits, all my medications, unless there is an extra special thing that I have to get somewhere else. So the finances with our both insurance companies, it's no real burden. And compared to what we spent, say $10,000 in less than two weeks when she first had surgery. Well, this doctor, he really screamed and hollered at me. And so this doctor quit and said, why are you going down there? They're going to take all your money. And I said, uh-uh, because you already did. The war of money between Hoxie and the doctors is another old story in medicine. In the 1800s, doctors tried to stop the popular empirics from collecting their fees by denouncing them as quacks. Economic competition from the empiric healers caused the doctors to found the American Medical Association. But the AMA was a small trade association without political clout, and the balance of medical power remained equal until the turn of the century. Then, new medical treatments emerged that were potentially very profitable. Promoting these methods, the AMA joined with strong financial forces to transform medicine into an industry. The fortunes of Carnegie, Morgan, and Rockefeller financed surgery, radiation, and synthetic drugs. They were to become the economic foundations of the new medical economy. Ironically, John D. Rockefeller himself used only an empiric homeopath while investing in allopathic medicine. Surgery became viable with anesthesia and infection control, and doctors advocated expensive radical operations. These in turn produced the need for a large, lucrative hospital system. The allopaths also discovered a new toxic mineral, radium. Radium fever swept medicine. The price of radium rose 1,000% almost overnight. Another costly technological industry entered the hospital system. A drug industry grew out of the booming patent medicine business. Ironically, many of the new synthetic drugs came from plants and empiric remedies. Drug company ads boosted the revenues of the AMA journal 500% in 10 years. The doctors changed educational standards and licensing regulations to exclude the empirics. 
Soon, only AMA-approved doctors could legally practice medicine. In a brief 20 years, the AMA came to dominate medical practice. Organized Medicine launched a media campaign to associate the empirics with quacks. The code word for competition was quackery. The rats in those cages were fed on a special whole wheat bread containing molasses, salt, honey, malt, caramel, yeast. We had the brain of the wolf for cunning. Plus dehydrated vegetable flours made from carrots, spinach, kelp, lettuce, pumpkin. Come on, step right up, Jen. What do you got to lose except all your aches and pains? Cabbage, parsley, and onions, potatoes, bone meal, and sunflower seeds. You're kidding. No, this is a special health bread, marketed at about twice the price of ordinary bread. To make your skin as smooth as a lotus blossom. And may love attend you forever. Now, these poor rats had only ordinary enriched white bread. Well, I'll be darned. I can't find any differences. Neither can the scales nor the rats. How many people have died as a result of your treatment? How many victims have you left in broken health? What? How much money have you made from this racket? The AMA targeted Harry Hoxie as public quack number one. But by the 1940s, its quack files had swelled to include 300,000 names. Hoxie had long charged a conspiracy. His solitary voice was now echoed by many others. In the 1950s, a congressional committee came to the same conclusion. The Fitzgerald Report to Congress named at least a dozen other promising cancer treatments seemingly blocked by organized medicine. Their proponents were mostly doctors and scientists of high reputation. The treatments were immunological or nutritional. Dismissing them as quackery were panels of surgeons and radiation therapists. The congressional report emphasized two outstanding cases of alleged suppression, Harry Hoxie and Dr. Andrew C. Ivey. If Hoxie fit the image of a quack, Dr. Ivey certainly did not. Dr. Ivey is the recipient of half a dozen honorary degrees as well as a dozen international awards. Organizer of the Naval Medical Research Institute, Bethesda, Maryland. Former executive director of the National Advisory Cancer Council. Vice president, University of Illinois. Former board member, American Cancer Society. For his association with probiocin, Dr. Ivey was discredited by the scientific community. He was suspended by the Chicago Medical Society for three months. He was deprived of his post as vice president of the University of Illinois, and he voluntarily resigned from the American Medical Association. The legislators in 1953 appointed a commission to determine whether or not there was a conspiracy against Krabiazin and its sponsors. Target of the most serious accusation was Dr. J.J. Moore, treasurer of the AMA at the time of its Krabiazin status report and a well-known Chicago pathologist. Dr. Dorovic charged that Dr. Moore tried to get him to give distribution rights of the drug to two businessmen, friends of Dr. Moore. Dr. Dorovic asserted that Dr. Moore, when denied any participation for his friends, threatened to destroy Krabiazin, Dr. Dorovic, and Dr. Ivey through his influence in the AMA and at the university. The similarity of Dr. Ivey's charges to those of Hoxie was unmistakable. A failed attempt by an AMA official to buy his formulas. 
followed by blackballing and a refusal to test the therapy. The Fitzgerald report to Congress described a menacing pattern. Fitzgerald concluded in his report, quote, Behind this is the weirdest conglomeration of corrupt motives, intrigue, selfishness, jealousy, obstruction, and conspiracy that I have ever seen. Despite its shocking conclusions, the Fitzgerald report slipped quietly into the appendix of the congressional record. With Dr. Ivey's death, Krabiason would vanish untested. At the height of the McCarthy era, a dozen other promising treatments would be banned without investigation. There are many cases to be cited in terms of congressional investigations, and it's really kind of pathetic, particularly for somebody like me that is a cancer patient and all the other people out there with cancer. If they were to go through the litany of congressional investigations looking into cancer and read the 1953 Fitzgerald report on the Hoxie therapy, if they read the 1963 hearings of Senator Paul Douglas of Illinois on Krabiasin, and if they read the 1981 hearings of Senator Paula Hawkins of Florida that was investigating the fraud at the National Cancer Institute, if the average person realized what I'm telling you here today, I think there would be an uproar that would be enormous. And that's exactly what it's going to take to change the system. In 1986, an uproar by cancer patients prompted Congress to look into new charges of medical suppression. The pattern of events is alarmingly familiar. Cancer researcher Lawrence Burton held a successful demonstration of his immunological treatment reported by the national press. Still, the National Cancer Institute refused him an investigation. Burton later charged the NCI with underhandedly trying to obtain his methods. Under pressure, Burton finally moved his clinic to the Bahamas in the 1970s, but his troubles did not end there. It's believed as many as 1,000 cancer patients have come to Freeport's Immunology Researching Center since it opened in the late 1970s. Their treatment included injections of blood serums aimed at helping them fight off their cancer. But doctors in Florida and Washington say those injections were contaminated because AIDS antibodies were found to be present in the serum. Bahamian authorities recently closed down the center. Cancer patients all over the country who came here seeking a cure fear they may now be infected with AIDS. While some of his patients, like Lester Maddox, fear they may get AIDS from the clinic, others believe they've been condemned to die from cancer because the Freeport Clinic is now out of business. Al Sunshine, CNN, Miami. The Congressional Committee has since made these findings. The contamination report was false. It came from a high NCI official. The inaccurate report was circulated in the AMA Journal and by officials from the White House and State Department. The clinic closure coincided with the U.S. release of a new drug strikingly similar to Burton's approach. As a result, 38 congressmen have signed a formal request for an independent federal evaluation of alternative cancer therapies. Now the question arises, is there a honest, premeditated, conspiratorial activity underway to maintain the status quo? To prevent, if you will, a cure to cancer? And I say no. But there is a system that we have 
which has evolved over the years, which include the National Cancer Institute, the Food and Drug Administration, federal government, parts of Congress that oversee these groups, pharmaceutical companies who peddle the drugs, who do the basic toxicity testing of almost all the drugs, a way of business has been established. A way of business has been established. And they're not going to let anybody from outside break into the inner club. Cancer is a big business, one of the biggest businesses. The typical cancer patient spends at least $50,000 to treat his or her disease. With one million new American cancer patients every year, that translates to $50 billion annually spent on cancer treatment in the United States. Another fact, and this is the real bottom line, there are more people making a living from conventional cancer research and treatment than are dying from the disease every year. The last figure that I saw in a trade journal known as the Chemical Marketing Reporter indicated that it costs $96 million to prove a drug is safe and efficacious. What drug company in its right mind would want to prove that an herb would cure disease X if it's going to cost them $96 million and then you and I can grow this herb in our backyard? How do they get their $96 million back? This is a big problem, and I don't see any solution at the moment. The Director General, uh, Dr. Haftan Mahler of the World Health Organization, made a very dramatic announcement when he said that uh, the poor of the world simply can't afford industrial medicine because of the costs. What medicine can they afford but the medicine of their native healers, who by and large utilize the local herbs for health care and know those traditions quite thoroughly? So there is now a worldwide push to promote the practice of the native healer in all of the traditional societies in the world who depend on herbal medicine. Recently, the National Cancer Institute gave a large grant to the Bronx New York Botanical Garden to scour the far corners of the world in search of traditional plants that might have action against cancer. The NCI said that this is one of the most promising areas for future cancer treatment. Uh, the scientists are going to interview traditional tribal shamans and doctors to find out what they know about treating cancer with herbs and plants. It would seem that the NCI should not ignore traditional native North American herbs and plants either, which have action against cancer, some of which have been used for decades now as part of the Hoxie therapy. Until recently, doctors have been limited to using three therapies to treat cancer, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Perhaps the new directions of research now coming out of the NCI and elsewhere will finally allow physicians more freedom to truly practice medicine. I think definitely doctors need to be educated. I think they really don't realize what a help this clinic or other clinics can be for cancer victims. You shouldn't have to go out of the country since we're supposed to have the best medicine systems in the world and whatnot. It's, it just seems kind of ironic sometimes. I think that we should have freedom of information, and then we should have freedom of choice. And that should be made available to the public, and then let them choose what route they're going to take. I mean, I think we're all adults mainly and uh, in charge of our own destiny, and we should be allowed to go whatever route we think would be best for us.
so there really is no freedom uh, of uh, or lack of freedom and choice in in telling people that they can't lie, they can't advertise falsely. I hate to see people go for alternative therapies when they have a very good chance of being cured, say at that moment, in a traditional way. Because I know that they're increasing their risk and they may die pursuing something that doesn't work. But I have to say it is their life, not mine. And I, I can state honestly what I think and I say to a lot of people, I wouldn't do what you're doing. They, they don't run out the door with that. They say, okay, but this is my choice and this is what I want to do. We feel that cancer is a scary thing and it's a dangerous thing. So sometimes we feel we have to rush right into the only thing the doctor tells us because this is life and death. And uh, it's nice to know we have a choice. November, I think, of 84, the year which I lost her, the doctor wrote down... He put down terminal, and that was in November of '84. But until then, I never thought, even thought of terminal anything. But I guess her condition made him think. Well, this is the state that he would classify her as. The biggest discomfort we had with this treatment was going 500 miles to get it. I've only known one or two people that underwent the traditional treatment, and from what they say, they do the. They, discomfort, nausea, and, and stuff that they had, there was no comparison because she didn't have any of that. So I say initially the quality of life was actually enhanced because we were just the two of us were together and it was kind of neat in that respect. We did things we hadn't done in a long time and it was kind of like a little outing for she and I because we were together We'd go down to San Diego, we'd go to the movie. Which the movie more in the last year of her life than we did the previous 30 years. I mean, I couldn't say, well, this doesn't work. I couldn't say this obviously does work. This is what we chose, and we felt good about it. It's unfortunate it didn't work the way we wanted it to. But as she said, once she says, well, I could have been dead already if I'd gone the other route. I think we're all right now just content so well, she did what she wanted to and thought was best. And I think that's the consolation that I have, that I helped her to accomplish the ends which she, to do what she wanted to do. I've, I've really looked at it always, always from a patient's point of view. And if there's something in orthodoxy, like a little bit of radiation, or the proper surgery for at the, exactly the right time, with good nutritional support. This is what I want. What I want is whatever is best for the patient. And I don't care whether it's called orthodox, unorthodox, fringe, I don't care. There's just too many people dying. Too many people dying. Surely to goodness, we're gonna have enough heart and compassion for people. But the day has to come that everybody's going to be concerned about everybody else in some manner help take care of them. What were we put here for except to help each other? In medicine especially, the goal is to help one another. 
Yet many patients are still caught in a medical crossfire because cancer treatment has become a political issue instead of a medical question. But we are witnessing a transformation in medicine. Treatments such as nutrition, herbal medicines, attitudinal healing, and immunology, once considered quackery, are now on the leading edge of research. It's time to end the civil war in medicine. How many lives can we save? How many treatments can we explore? your head in a microwave and turn it on, you'd be dead in short order if you did. 
then why would you use your cell phone without a filter to shield you from radiation? Use the Wave Shield, tested and proven to reduce tumors in and around your ear where you hold your phone. This is true for portable phones and even Bluetooth where the antenna acts like a lightning rod zapping your ear with radiation. The solution is simple. Order the Wave Shield, an inexpensive filter that easily goes right on your cell phone and blocks radiation going in your ear up to 99%. Go to theamericanvoice.com or call toll-free 866-989-9147. It's affordable and a lifesaver. Again, that's theamericanvoice.com or call toll-free 866-989-9147. Get a filter for your cell phone now to spare yourself and your loved ones from cancer. Mention you heard it on the American Voice Radio Network. In like 10 years, 12 years time, the U.S. dollar will be like wallpaper. We are on the precipice of a, of a major uh, economic financial collapse. I mean, what we've just experienced, I mean, that's, 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 that's the opening act. I mean, the real collapse is coming. One stimulus package will lead to the next one and to more money printing. And so in five to ten years' time, the real crisis will break out when the whole system collapses. That will be the end. Eventually, this dollar is going to quit working, and then everybody's going to know what poverty is all about. Our politicians need to understand why. Why the country is in this shape. It's because of them. It's because of the Federal Reserve and their policies, their, their, their regulations that have distorted the free market and that have created this mess. And that if they don't stop doing what they're doing, it's, you know, there's going to be no turning back. As the fiscal deficit goes up, the interest payments on the government debt also go up. They are now around $400 billion annually. I would think that they'll be around a trillion dollars in five to seven years' time. Can you talk to us about the deficit? Are you worried? Should this be a near-term Everybody priority? Everybody ought to be worried about the deficit. It's a big deficit, but the time will come to deal with it. And so then the government goes bust, and before it does that, it will inflate its way out or try to inflate its way out, and that won't work. So the next step will be to go to war, and the whole thing will collapse. Since the release of our first documentary, Hyperinflation Nation, five months ago, gold prices have increased from $925 per ounce to over $1,150 per ounce while silver has increased from $14 per ounce to over $18 per ounce. The rise in the price of gold and silver is a result of the major monetary inflation being created by the Federal Reserve, which has held interest rates at 0% for almost a full year. Under the false pretenses of trying to get our phony economy to recover, the Federal Reserve is giving trillions of dollars away for free to bankers on Wall Street at the expense of the American middle class, who will soon see the purchasing power of their savings disappear. The false strength of our phony economy has become dependent on easy money and cheap credit from the Federal Reserve. The longer the Federal Reserve waits to raise interest rates, the greater the chances that our economy will overdose on excess liquidity. There will be two social classes of Americans in the future, those who sell their U.S. dollars today and buy gold and silver, and those who buy into the false hope of an economic recovery. It's sort of like trying to get somebody off drugs. You don't, what you're talking about is you don't want the withdrawal symptoms, and I admit there will be withdrawal symptoms. But keeping them on the drug, which is easy money, easy spending, and huge deficits and all that, may, that'll 
they'll kill the patient. And the, and the patient, for me, is the dollar. And we're going to be on the verge of killing the patient. And when you see gold up at $1,100 an ounce, that's a little bit of a warning sign. If we keep interest rates artificially low, we're going to destroy the currency. We're not just, we're going to be talking about, you know, gold not just going up, you know, $25 in a day, but $50, $100 in a day, $1,000 in a day. The U.S. national debt just surpassed $12 trillion. And the U.S. government itself is estimating a $9 trillion budget deficit over the next 10 years. If the U.S. government was a publicly traded company, it would be bankrupt and its stock price would be zero. It's only a matter of time before the decline in the U.S. dollar we are seeing today becomes a route and the dollar returns to its intrinsic value of zero. From what I read and from what I see, there's no intention whatsoever of U.S. policymakers to do anything to stabilize the dollar. They'll continue to print money, and I think long term, my end value for the dollar is zero. While they see it as a remote possibility, their big concern for the moment is the potential for a disorderly decline in the dollar, which they describe it as a momentum-led sell-off where the market would become untethered from fundamentals. In that event, officials say they have contingency plans of what they would say and do. They decline to specify what those plans would be. They insist those plans are not a matter of heightened concern, just prudent preparation, like a plan for the invasion of a country that is unlikely to invade. You never expect to need it, but it would be foolish not to have it in place. There is no point for the government to make a contingency plan for when the dollar collapses, because at that point, it will be too late. They should be acting to restore confidence in the dollar now before it collapses. The Federal Reserve is nothing more than a counterfeiting operation. Since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, 95 cents of every dollar saved by Americans has been stolen. Some might consider the Federal Reserve to be unconstitutional and this dilution of savings to be a crime. Yet there is still no widespread outrage about it. This is not new. This is historic. The king in the old days always had key, always had control of the money. They did it in different ways. They clipped coins, diluted the metal, printed money. Today, it's really sophisticated. It's done secretly with a computer. And that's why it's made it so much more dangerous than ever before. So who got the money? To financial institutions in, in Europe and other countries? Which ones? I don't know. Half a trillion dollars, and you don't know who got the money. Uh, the loan went to the the loans go to the central banks, and they they then put them out to their um, to their institutions to try to bring down short-term interest rates in dollar markets around the world. Well, look at the next page. The very next page has the U.S. dollar nominal exchange rate, which shows a 20% increase in the U.S. dollar nominal exchange rate at exactly the same time that you were handing out half a trillion dollars to foreigners. Do you think that's a coincidence? Bernanke is not doing a good job. He's doing a horrific job. He's doing, you know, about as bad a job as you could do. I mean, maybe it's possible there's somebody who could do a worse job. I mean, I, I don't know for sure, but there might be. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke recently said that the U.S. should cut down on its budget deficit in order to reduce global imbalances. This is hypocritical, as it's Bernanke who is allowing the U.S. to have such huge budget deficits by monetizing our government spending. Bernanke is the only person with the power to put a stop to this madness. But in his campaign to get reappointed, he most likely promised everyone in Washington 
that he would continue monetizing their spending into the future. In 10 years' time, in my opinion, about 50% of tax revenues will be used to just cover the interest payments on the government debt. And that is unsustainable, then you really are forced to print money. Have you ever looked around your house to see where the products inside of it were made? Most likely, 90% of them were made in China. How could the U.S. have the biggest economy in the world if so few of what we own is made here? The U.S.'s biggest export is inflation. Because of the dollar's status as the world's reserve currency, we can just print the money to purchase the goods we consume. However, the world is now looking to move away from the dollar as the world's reserve currency. You know, you, you know this should be fun story on the evening news every night. I mean, this is this is a big thing. Our credit card is about to be taken away. I mean, the reason that this country has been able to survive all these years is because we can print money instead of making stuff. It is the U.S. dollar status as the world's reserve currency and the fact that foreign nations are forced to trade oil and other commodities in U.S. dollars that has kept the U.S. economy propped up until now. Recent reports indicate that Saudi states are meeting with countries like China and Japan in order to end dollar-based oil transactions and begin transacting oil using a new basket of currencies. To further their move away from the U.S. dollar, China's Ministry of Finance recently announced plans to sell billions worth of two-year, three-year, and five-year yuan-denominated bonds in Hong Kong. Shockingly, over the past three months, foreign central banks have put 63% of their new cash purchases into euros and yen, and not into the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar still accounts for 62% of the world's foreign currency reserves at foreign central banks. But for how long? India just purchased 200 metric tons of gold from the IMF for $6.7 billion in order to diversify their reserves away from the U.S. dollar. How low will the U.S. dollar fall and how high will gold rise? When more central banks diversify out of dollars and into gold, despite China boosting its gold reserves by 76% since 2003, gold still only accounts for 1.5% of China's foreign currency reserves. Yet, China still owns 1.6 trillion in U.S. dollar reserves. Most telling of all, China is now encouraging their citizens to invest in silver and will be offering silver for sale at banks in China. It's the first ever investment opportunity for silver bullion. The bars are available in 500 grams, 1 kilogram, 2 kilograms and 5 kilograms with a purity of 99.9%. Figures show that gold was 50 times more extensive than silver in 2007. But now that figure has reached over 70 times, the highest in the past five years. And they say that silver has been undervalued in recent years. They add that the metal is a wise investment for individual investors and could be a good way to cash in. We are the first to offer silver bullion as an investment opportunity. The price for the first batch of the bullion is set very low, close to the cost of the raw material. The investment threshold is not high and is more suitable for the general public. Silver is much cheaper than gold. While the U.S. saw positive GDP growth last quarter, 
and Bernanke called the recession very likely over, consumer spending now accounts for 71% of our GDP compared to the long-term average of 65%. This means our economy is actually weakening underneath the surface. In order for our economy to truly recover, we need to switch from being a nation of consumers to a nation of producers. But in order for the U.S. to once again begin producing goods to export to the rest of the world, we need Americans to increase savings. In late 2008, early 2009, after the U.S. financial markets collapsed, the first instinct of Americans was to start saving. While initially the American savings rate tripled to a high in May of 6.2% after the government's artificial stimulus took effect, the savings rate plummeted in half back down to 3%. The free market was trying desperately to get our economy headed in the right direction, but the government destroyed any progress that was made. 42% of the phony GDP growth we saw last quarter came from the government's destructive cash for clunkers program. And so here's a car that people own. That they would drive without any payment. They didn't have any car loans on the clunkers. They own none. Let's destroy that. Let's give you forty five hundred dollars for acid on the on the engine so it'll never work. And then we'll pay money to scrap it and all that. Who knows what it costs to actually get rid of each of these working cars. And let's encourage you to go buy a brand new car that you can't afford. And you're going to go into debt and do it. So now, every month, you have to make a car payment that you didn't have before. This is great. This is really how to get out of a recession, right? Shoot it's like It's like we got shot in the arm, and so the solution is, well, let's shoot ourselves in the foot, too. Cash for Clunkers was a Chinese program because they would not take our U.S. dollars for their exports. We had to send them a bunch of metal and steel for them to give any type of credit to the U.S. A lot of people don't realize that. That was the brainchild of the Chinese embassy, not the U.S. Cash for Clunkers isn't the government's only wasteful new program. They recently extended the home buyer's tax rebate, which credits a first-time home buyer or somebody who hasn't owned a home in three years $8,000 for buying a house. They are also giving out $6,500 to those who lived in their prior home for five years or more and now wish to buy a new home. Not only that, but if you can't afford to pay your mortgage, the government is now going to allow you to rent your home from Fannie Mae at a reduced rate in a new Deed for Lease program. The home buyer's tax rebate and Deed for Lease programs are designed to create artificial demand for houses and keep housing inventory off of the market. This is creating the false signal that the real estate market has bottomed and now is a good time to buy real estate. Unfortunately, Americans who buy real estate at this time will get slaughtered. The average U.S. home currently costs 20,000 ounces of silver. The last time the Federal Reserve rapidly increased its money supply back in the 1970s, we saw home prices fall from 20,000 ounces of silver down to a low of 2,000 ounces of silver. The bottom line is, if you invest in silver today instead of real estate, you might be able to afford a house 10 times nicer in 5 to 10 years. Most Americans today believe dollars are a safe asset because it has a number on it that always stays the same. 
While gold and silver's nominal prices can sometimes be very volatile, what's going to happen to the dollar when Americans wake up and realize it is actually the riskiest asset of all? Americans have come to accept inflation as being normal. They've learned from their parents that it was only 60 years ago when it cost five cents for a glass bottle of Coke, five cents for a pack of baseball cards, five cents for a Hershey chocolate bar, 15 cents for a burger at McDonald's, 16 cents for Kellogg's cornflakes, and 50 cents for a movie ticket. But they see nothing wrong with this because inflation occurred over a long period of time. It took 25 years for our national debt to double from $257 billion in 1950 to over $533 billion in 1975. Most recently, our national debt has more than doubled from $5.8 trillion in 2001 to its current level of over $12 trillion in just eight years. Our national debt is now growing three times faster than it did decades ago, which means we should expect a very minimum of three times faster inflation. Therefore, if it took 60 years for a movie ticket price to rise from 50 cents to $7.50, it will most certainly rise to at least $112.50 within the next 20 years, and that's a best-case scenario. Americans may not see much price inflation today because major U.S. banks are currently hoarding $860 billion in excess reserves. Congress passed legislation in late 2008 allowing the Federal Reserve to pay interest on the reserves banks keep parked at the Fed. However, as some of these banks begin to make loans, price inflation will increase to a level that is higher than the interest they collect. This will force the other banks to also make loans, and we will see a huge flood of dollars entering the system all at once. I heard you uh, talk about you use pricing as, as a reference, and that uh, purely printing more money doesn't cause inflation, which was really new news to me. And I wondered if you tell me what you think causes inflation. Well, let, let's be clear what's, what's going on. Um, the Federal Reserve is not putting money out in, into, the, into the economy. What we're doing is we're creating bank reserves. That's money that the banks hold with the Fed. So it's just sitting there idly. It's not chasing any goods, okay? So as long as those bank reserves are sitting idly, broader measures of money that measure the circulation but, of money. But it, but it won't sit there idly forever. The right, purpose exactly. of it is not to sit there idly forever. And, right. And, and, and while there may be a time lapse, certainly, unless that money gets sucked back in, uh, exactly. And out of circulation, it's going to cause inflation. There's no denying it. It's not sucked back in, but as I was describing, we have ways of sucking it back in. We How? Well, one way to do it is by raising, interest, raising the interest rate we pay on those reserves, which induces banks to keep the money with us instead of lending it out or circulating it through the economy. To counteract the inflation of the 1970s, the Federal Reserve needed to raise interest rates in 1980 to 21.5%. With interest rates currently being held at an artificially low level of 0% for an extended period of time, artificially high interest rates of 21.5% or more will once again be needed to counteract the damage being done today. In 2009, the U.S. government spent $383 billion 
on interest payments to holders of our national debt. Considering that most of our national debt is now made up of short-term T-bills, if we see the Federal Reserve raise interest rates to 21.5%, our interest payments could grow to over $2.58 trillion when our entire government tax receipts in 2009 were only $2.185 trillion. It will be impossible for Obama to meet his budget projection and cut the deficit in half from $1.6 trillion in 2009 to $761 billion in 2012. Most likely by 2012, we will be looking at $3 or $4 trillion budget deficits or more. Therefore, the trend of accelerating national debt growth is likely to continue and the next doubling of our debt could actually occur in four years, which means we could see our $112 movie ticket within the next five to ten years. But that's only if the Chinese are dumb enough to keep lending us their money. Most likely, the Chinese will stop lending us their money and just allow the dollar to collapse. As they devalue the dollar and the currencies around the world are worth more, they're going to come in here and buy this country up for dimes on the dollar. So all you people out there, you know who the man you're going to be working for? Well, the man's going to be from China. They're going to be from countries with money. All Americans who ride in taxi cabs in major U.S. cities have probably heard dozens of stories from immigrants telling their tales of how they escaped their homeland in order to get to America. In the future, taxicab drivers in Asian countries will be talking about how they escaped America in order to get there. There are now thousands of young Americans who are moving to China for jobs. You go to school, you get good grades, you work for 30 years, and then you retire. That system is, is a fraud, it's an illusion, and it hasn't even been tested. It's been one big experiment. We have an education system here in America where high schools teach students nothing other than the need to get deeply into debt to obtain a college degree that is worthless because everyone else has one. How about getting out of college and being, what, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars in debt? Look, we know Ivy League graduates at a law school that can't find jobs. You think they're going to be angry? Our nation's most prestigious Ivy League schools are teaching students delusive economic principles. Look what students at Harvard are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to learn from their professors. On health care costs, um, Bob is absolutely right that health care spending as a percent of GDP has been rising, um, and it's largely rising because of technological advance. My own forecast is that that will continue, and that should continue. So actually, I don't. I actually, I'm nervous about prospects uh, to rein in healthcare costs that are too aggressive because I think that uh, healthcare advances have been a modern form of progress. Harvard is brainwashing students with absolute nonsense. Healthcare costs are not rising due to technological advances; they are rising due to government involvement. You look at the areas where government is not involved. I mean, government is not involved in you know in, in, in personal computers. They're not involved in, in, in cell phones, yet the prices are falling. 
know, if the government was involved, the prices wouldn't be falling. I mean, you can easily, they can easily rationalize it by saying, well, of course computer prices are going up. Look how much more sophisticated they are. Look how much more powerful they are. How could, how could the not, prices not go up? You know, they make the same arguments with education or health insurance. Well, you know, they say health insurance, well, it's so much more complicated. We have so much better procedures. You know, if there was no government involved, I'm sure health care costs would be falling. Uh, just like other costs are falling in the economy. Because the free market is the best mechanism for driving costs down. If you look at braces or you look at eye surgery or you look at uh, breast enhancements, um, these prices were really high when the technology first came out. But just like other electronics like plasma TVs or cell phones, this stuff has all contracted. The prices have decreased. Healthcare decreases in prices everywhere the government isn't. Not only is inflation gravitating towards the area of our economy in which the government is involved in the most, but it is also beginning to gravitate towards the goods that Americans need the most, and there is nothing that Americans need more than food and agricultural products. I'm big on agriculture commodities. People need to eat. It's not an optional thing. It's not like, you know what, I really want to buy an ounce of gold, but some people can't afford it. But people can say, you know, I really want to eat, but I really can't afford it. People are going to eat. They're going to acquire food. Um, so that's why, with complete assurity, I, I know, it might sound arrogant, but I know that the prices of basic commodities and food is going to go up and going to go way up. Before, if you take a dollar, you could give your kid a dollar and they're able to buy, you know, a cookie, a bag of chips, and maybe a fruit punch. That, that's pretty good for a dollar. Right now, you could get a fruit punch. And this was only two years ago. A fruit punch that we sell at 35 cents is now 69 cents. That's double. That's hyperinflated. And people don't realize it because it's such at a low level. All the basic things, that's candies, foods, the real small 25 cent things, those are all doubled in price already. Why isn't people realizing that? Look at what happened to the price of rice. As a Korean, I don't shop for rice, but you know, a lot of ladies do. They didn't really realize why their, that bag of rice from $5 went to 19 Brazil said, we're not gonna take no more dollars for rice. We'd rather eat it on our own because our economy is growing. And from just Brazil stopping their exports to the U.S., bags of rice went from $5 to $15 overnight. Already, you know, I said I was trying to buy a young coconut. They were $1.19 four months ago. I went to buy a young coconut. It was $1.69. You know, 40-50% inflation in months. People on the ground all over America are noticing the price of bread and eggs and things going up. So this inflation, what's important, which is food. So if that's the case, it'd be better to switch those dollars for food right now than not to do so. I mean, we're going to see, seriously, Victory Gardens popping up all over LA and Southern California. Especially Southern California because, you know what, next year it's going to be horrible for foods. I mean, horrible in a sense that it's going to be so inflated. Because, you know, California this year, the fall harvest was wiped out. There's nothing in California. Where's the avocados? Where's the apples? Where's the pears? There's none. The inventories of agricultural products are the lowest they've been in decades. Not years, Bernie, but in decades. And we're going to have more problems. There are going to be periods when people cannot get food at any price. And this has not happened in our lifetime. Last year, the farmers couldn't get loans for fertilizers. They have to shut down 
counties and counties and counties because of the water issue. Uh, there's colony collapse disorder where there's no bees in California. They've been having to import bees from Arizona, and that's not even covering uh, even 10% of the pollination. So we're going to sit a huge food shortage come next year in California. You're going to see hyperinflation big time. Look at cranberries. You know, they used to have ocean spray cranberry juice. Read the label. It's not real cranberries anymore. They, they, they can't afford real cranberries to make ocean spray. Remember, ocean spray was famous for using real cranberries. Mm-mm, not anymore. With food and agriculture prices starting to go through the roof, even working-class Americans are becoming dependent on food stamps. If you really want to know how this downturn is affecting people, you look at food stamp use. And right now, we're running 43% of people who are on food stamps have a job. What is going to happen when Americans receive their food stamps, but the shelves at the grocery stores that accept them are empty? What's going to happen when senior citizens receive their Social Security checks, but they aren't worth enough to pay for the gas needed to drive to the bank and cash them? Civil unrest will happen in this country because of hyperinflation. Now, what's going to happen to the entitlements? These entitlements are exploding in our faces. They're bankrupting Europe. They're bankrupting the United States. So Americans will either be broke, dumb, ignorant, and begging for more entitlements, or Americans will watch documentaries like these and educate themselves. And when this wall finally tears down, when this whole system collapses and explodes into our faces, over the coming years and months, Americans have the opportunity to tear down the entitlements, to go back to an ownership and individual society where you work hard, you keep what you make, and you take care of your family. And when you can't take care of yourself, you look to family, not the government. The National Inflation Association is dedicated to helping Americans prepare for and prosper during hyperinflation. NIA will soon be releasing the world's first ever comprehensive, unbiased review of all of the major online sellers of gold and silver bullion. If you would like to receive this special upcoming report along with NIA's latest articles and updates about hyperinflation and the collapsing U.S. dollar, sign up today for the free NIA newsletter at Inflation. US. Also be sure to check out NIA's newest feature on Inflation.us called NIA Answers, where you can submit to NIA your questions about inflation and the economy and search through the database of previously answered questions. ago, 29 million Americans were on food stamps. Today, it's 36 million Americans. That's just over 1 in 10. China has already surpassed us in being the largest car buyers in the world. That's not real recovery. That's borrowing money from the future generations and spending it now and then saying we're in recovery. So that's insanity.
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events. And today is Wednesday, February 24th, 2016. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. Well, gold had a good and bad day today. We had a big rise in spot prices today. Um, Paper markets opened down very strong today. Uh, they were down almost 300 points with gold rising, passing the 1250 level. 1254 is a high. Um, about midday, everything started to reverse itself. We're still showing a 350 positive on gold at 1229.90. Silver was down six cents at 1531. And uh, the high for silver today was 1566. Platinum was down 6 at 942. Palladium is down 13 at 490. Paper uh, dollar today, the USDX today, uh, again, that reversed itself, 97.46. All markets reversed themselves. Even crude oil was down big, and it turned around to 0.42 to the upside at 32.29. And the paper markets... Let me get to that screen. And we do have Wendy Wilson joining us today from Apothecary Herbs. As soon as I'm done with these uh, paper numbers, uh, paper markets, the Dow was up 53 points, 16,484. The NASDAQ up 39 at 45.42. After that was down about 2% earlier in trade. The S&P up 8 at 19.29. Even the 10-year yield, that was like 1.65, I believe I saw it. 
And that reversed 1.74%. The euro's holding 110. Uh, Germany was down big, 2.6%. London, 1.6%. Hong Kong, 1.1%. Japan, under 1%. So negative markets around the world. And, uh, hey, the good old U.S. of A. was managed to uh, be up 53 points a little over a quarter of a percent. So um, these other markets got to get on the ball and learn how the U.S. manipulates. <laughs> then they can. Oh, they're learning. Then they can do they're the learning. same. They're learning. They're slow learners, yeah. but uh, uh, they're, they're they're coming along. They're coming. We along. should have a class. The Federal Reserve should be conducting a class this spring <laughs> for China and Europe. You guys don't understand how to properly how to manipulate yeah. your markets. Yeah, here. They're getting in a lot of trouble here, pushing those buttons and pulling those levers when you don't under understand how they work. So, yeah. so anyway, interesting day, and uh, but it was good to see gold uh, higher. It was good to see it pass over 1250. We need to get it closed up above there, and uh, we'll have to see what tomorrow brings. Yep. Now I'd like to say hello to Wendy Wilson from Apothecary Herbs. We always enjoy having her join us on Wednesdays. Good afternoon, Wendy. Oh, good afternoon, Melody, and hello, Al. How's everybody? Good. Great. How you doing, Wendy? I'm good. I thought we'd talk about some evident changes in the, um, you know, free health care. we got some hostile health care situations, actually, according to medical staff. And, um, you know, socialized medical systems are, they tend to be riddled with supply and staffing and drug availability problems. And so this is what the U.S. hospitals are now experiencing. And there's also a morale problem. So according to some of the healthcare employees that are working inside of healthcare, uh, they say it has become a hostile environment. So hostile for patients or hostile for employees? Well, it's hostile for employees, but it doesn't do the patients any good. If you know what I'm okay. saying, uh, mm-hmm. there are reports that they're you know. This hostility, but are they exaggerated? Well, according to Patricia Barnes, she's the author of Surviving Bullies, Queen Bees, and Psychopaths in the Workplace. She says the reports are valid. She says it's characterized by repetition, duration, escalation, and power disparity and willful intent. So this hostility, aren't these aren't isolated incidents among staff, and it creates a lot of job stress. And it, And it's not like Sexual harassment, which is a well-defined legal definition. Uh, Bullying is yet to have a well-established unified legal definition. Now, according to a 2007 WBI survey, 13% of U.S. employees report they are bullied at work, and 12% say they witness it. So the Workplace Bullying Institute reports that women are more of a bully target than men by 57%. And men are more likely to participate in bullying behavior by 60%. And get this statistic, Al, Melanie. Divorced or separated individuals are bullied more at work than married, widowed, or never married workers. This is odd. Let me ask you a question. uh Let me ask you a question. Let me see if I understand this clearly. Are you Mm. saying these statistics apply to all workers? In the United yeah, those, States, or they apply to government workers? Those are to all workers, but we're going to get okay. more specific to the hospital workers in just a minute. Um, okay. But uh, basically all these stats are showing tr- uh, true to form that 
the person that's higher educated is usually the individual that's a bully compared to those that maybe just have a high school education. That's just what the statistics are showing. Now, there was a 2010 survey that showed that people who worked in protective services, community and social service occupations, and public administration and retail trade industries have a higher rate of bullying there at 16 to 25%. Now, there's a whole profile on bullying behavior and what to look for, but for the lack of time, we can't get that detailed. Uh, but I do want to read uh, you some quotes from some nurses who have weighed in. Because uh, hospital healthcare professionals, if they're forced to cope in a hospital environment, the patient care is suffering. So here's some examples of what some of the nurses are saying. One nurse said, I'm an ICU nurse and my patient was crashing. I ran to the hall, asked my coworker if she could help me, but she refused saying, going on a smoke break now. And uh, one of the other nurses says, I can't ask questions. The older nurses look at me like I'm stupid. And then one other quote was, after I told a younger nurse I couldn't pick up her extra days to cover her vacation, my hair got pulled three times during the shift. This is nonsense. It really is. Well, I understand. And what's the reason for this? And why bullying? I mean, we've got something that's not defined. Do we have a reason for it? Or is this just human behavior or what? Well, it is. But I think there's a lot of pressure in the healthcare system because their hospitals are running um, leaner and meaner, if you know what I mean. Uh, And I'll get to why in a minute. According to Kathleen Bartholomew, she's the author and a nursing professional national speaker, and she's an expert in physician-to-nurse communications. And she says the bullying in healthcare profession is higher than other professions. It's at 30%. And uh, so there is bullying from doctors to nurses as well as nurses to nurses. So this bullying in healthcare was so bad in Canada that the government there passed the bully busting bill in 2010 after a nurse died as a result of bullying. So, and she reminds us that a lot of the disruptive behaviors are hidden from general view. So according to her, she said, the healthcare, um, when this happens, the bullying in healthcare, it translates to low morale, low patient satisfaction, low patient safety, and low quality of care. And she says the healthcare professionals, they can't think straight because they're so upset and they make mistakes. Just witnessing upset behavior, she says, in the workplace impairs cognitive tasks and productivity. Productivity. She says that um, a lot of the high turnover for nurses, most nurses quit in six months because of this high-stress environment. And she says hospital managers spend 40% of their time resolving conflicts. Eventually, they start to ignore them, and they just call it um, horizontal hostility in healthcare, which is stupid but that's what they label it. And some hospitals are taking note and taking some steps to rectify this because all these problems cost the hospital $11,000 per nurse per year, impacts patient safety, and also causes urgent patient events. So uh, can, some nurses can become so rattled by all this that they make medicine mistakes, medication mistakes. So um, patients... Why aren't patients the bullies... Are, why aren't the bullies identified and simply fired? Well, and that's the thing. Um, one of the reasons is there's fear. Uh, the bullies really uh, know how to manipulate, and, and, they, and 
I didn't get to go over the bully profile, but they usually pick out people that are weaker than them. Sure. And, uh, and, and they can leverage, uh, leverage their position over those people. And uh, so they, they, they use a lot of fear. Uh, and 93% of the bully communication is nonverbal. It's, they can just control you with a look. So it's it's really uh, if you've never if you've never been abused, uh, it's hard to understand. It really is. Um, I've I've not I've not worked in healthcare for twenty years, but I know things have changed, and I think our job right now is to stay out of those hospital environments. You know, prevent disease or reverse it if you have it, and cleansing and nourishing the body is the way I usually go. But I do have more on this. The Affordable Care Act is so bogged down, Melody and Al, that um, it's so full of a lot of administrative garbage that patient care is being sacrificed. There's ill-trained staff. They're unable to accurately fulfill basic risk assessments for high-risk patients, and patients are complaining. They're paying hundreds of dollars a day, and staff can't manage IV drips, dressing changes, or empty bedpans, and physicians and nurses aren't reading patient records uh, entirely, and there's, uh, they, they skip over things like drug allergies, which is real important, or warning, warnings that are written on the chart by a consultant MD that there's a change in the patient's health. So um, this all adds up to mistreatment, and ERs are on record as saying that they're having trouble getting pain medications, and American hospitals really aren't um, uh, coming up to bar with the nourishment on the meals either. So it's really fallen apart in a lot of different areas. There was a report, Al, on the hospital layoffs from 2013 to 2015, and they're in the thousands. I don't have time to list them all. I'll just list by state. Hawaii had layoffs. Mississippi, uh, their big university hospitals. Uh, Massachusetts. North Carolina, Connecticut, California, Missouri, New York, Colorado, Indiana, Tennessee. Now, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, State University Medical, uh, largest layoff, over 2,300 employees, um, as well as the Cleveland Clinics. They also had around a 3,000 employee uh, layoff. So uh, big wet, white flag is a waving for the government to take over to have a one-payer system. That's what you're seeing on the way. So, um, but even if you do, that's not going to stop the problems we're talking about here. No, it it's sounds make it like even what. Worse. Yeah, it sounds like what you really need is a doctor who is your personal doctor. All right, as opposed to an institution where if you've got a doctor the way it used to be, you want to see your doctor. He and his nurses took care of you. There was a personal relationship. Right now, we've become anonymous in these hospital institutions, and nobody really cares. Well, no. and here's the thing. Here's the thing. The, the, the hospitals, um, because of the Affordable Care Act and the way that it's structured, um, there, there's really zero room for the hospitals now to make mistakes. Um, basically, the federal government will not reimburse for services they feel were an error, neglectful, or unnecessary. Um, so if uh, the hospitals can't be inefficient, and, but they're becoming more inefficient. Uh, what happens and is if what's, what's if driving checks, that inefficiency, right? And if a patient if a patient returns to the hospital after being discharged within sixty days, the hospital can face a fine from the government that they, they didn't do their job well enough. The patient's still coming back, so um, 
How so are it's they in their, It's in their interest to kill him. You need to die in the hospital. It looks like you're going to be back in 60 days. We're going to operate. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it, basically, in order for them to comply with all the Affordable Care Act mandates, um, they have to demonstrate services that they provided to the patient were necessary to keep the patient healthy. And and the problem is is it's, it's making it more expensive for the hospitals to operate to comply, and it's making it harder for them to get paid. Let me read you this uh, a report I just got in um, this week where um, the, the, the people that are on the exchange, the Affordable Care Act program, um, are, their deductibles have jumped from 800 to over $1,200. And what the hospitals are seeing is these patients that are on the bronze and silver plans, which have really high deductibles of two to $5,000, the hospitals are actually asking for their money up front when the patient comes into the hospital or they won't get served because they know that these guys can't pay for it. And so they'll never get their money. So now hospitals are looking at it as a dine and dash kind of situation. And so they want their money up front before you even get admitted now. Well, that's just evidence that this whole free health care thing is collapsing around Obama's ears. Right, right, uh, absolutely. Well, and under and, and, and the other thing that the hospitals are doing as a loophole is, is they won't admit a patient, especially under Medicare, uh, because if you're under observation, that means all the money, all the treatment is out of pocket for the patient. They don't have to deal with Obama administration, and so they are on purpose not admitting anybody, and then the patient's unaware that they are on the hook for the whole bill. So your recommendation is that we avoid these problems by staying out of the hospitals, if at all possible, <laughs> and we do that how? Well, I mean, cleanse the nurse. You get the toxins out that cause cellular stress and weakness, and you put the nutrition in. That's pretty basic. You'd be amazed how the body bounces back and regenerates itself. And then there's some immune boosting you can do along the way as well. And that's what we specialize in. And I have seen it over and over again that this really corrects a lot of internal medicine problems. So if people would like a free catalog, we'll send it to them. Toll-free numbers to call is 866-229-3663, 866-229-3663, or just visit the website, thepowerherbs.com. Thanks, guys. All right, Wendy, thank you. That's Wendy Wilson from thepowerherbs.com, 866-229-3663. Melody and I will be back on Financial Survival in just a moment. Please stay tuned. mistake. Aspirin was discovered by mistake during World War II and suppresses your immune system and prevents blood clotting. Don't expose your body to risk when you can use a natural inflammation and pain reliever called Extra Strength Pain Relief by Apothecary Herbs. Discover the power this formula has with salicin to enter the system in 60 seconds to work hard and relieve pain for 12 hours. Whether it's arthritis, sports injury, or flu, 
You can relieve aches, pain, and swelling with our Extra Strength Pain Relief Formula. Call Apothecary Herbs now, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Adisk, and this is Financial Survival. I'm here with Melody Cedarstrom. Programs brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188 for all your gold and silver coin needs. What's next, Melody? I want to remind the listeners to visit our website at dgscoins.com, dgscoins.com. Make sure you sign up for the weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays. And, of course, we do archive our radio programs. You can listen there live, and they are archived dgscoins.com. We got some great prices on gold and silver. They're kind of hard to to price out specials because of the the way the the prices have just fluctuated uh, so much. We do have some great fractional pieces in. Uh, We have some one-tenth ounce American gold eagles along with silver eagles. There are no delays in any of the product. The only product that I'd mentioned yesterday when Greg Hunter was on uh, the air with us were foreign gold and uh, platinum items, and they're even beginning to move a little bit more. So no delays in any of the products. It's just a matter of uh, getting it in sometimes uh, because we order and they deliver, but uh, we have to wait sometimes. There's a little gap a day or two, but uh, very rarely does anybody even notice uh, that little gap. So give us a call at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. 
An article from the Washington Times reporting what everyone already knows. I'm sure you know, but it's worth talking about a little bit. Donald Trump dominates in Nevada. Businessman Donald Trump easily won the Nevada GOP caucuses Tuesday, rolling to his third straight victory in the 2016 2016 nomination race and giving him extra momentum heading into the delegate-rich Super Tuesday contests next week. 30 delegates to the Republican National Convention were at stake. This is uh, uh, in Nevada. Trump's victory followed wins in New Hampshire and South Carolina. With 100% of the vote counted, Mr. Trump had 45.9% of the vote. Mr. Rubio at 23.8%. Mr. Cruz at 21.3%. Retired neurosurgeon Ben Carson was at 4.8%. Ohio Governor John Kasich was trailing at 3.6%. Um, you have to wonder when John Kasich is going to probably, uh, is he going to see the light here before this is all over? And Ben Casey, Ben Carson also, uh, are they going to drop out or are they going to hang on? Ben, and Casey. A end? ben Casey, you remember Ben Casey? Did I say Ben Casey? Yeah, at first you did, but yeah, well, I, I remember said ben Dave Casey. Carson. <laughs> Dave Carson's not the guy running either, but Dave Carson is somebody I used to know years ago. Yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine yeah, back in the day. Uh, Mr. Trump capitalized on voter frustration with Washington, with entrance polls showing that about 6 in 10 caucus voters wanted a candidate from outside the political establishment and were angry with the federal government. Now, we talked a little about that on another program I do on Tuesday nights. There are a couple of surveys out that show that, on the one hand, the biggest fear in people's lives. They did a survey, and they listed 88 items that some people regarded as fearful. The number one fear for Americans is government corruption. That's interesting. And there were more government-related fears in addition to that, but that was the number one at 58%. Um, Second survey came out and was... Similarly, another indication that people are just fed up to their ears with government. Right? Numbers in terms of 60, 70, 80 percent of the people have a very negative attitude toward government. And there's a point behind this. And the point is that most of the people, certainly I am anti-government. All right. I don't like what's going on with our government. I feel that the government is betraying us on a regular basis. And I think most of the people who listen to this program think the same way, or at least, you know, they are susceptible to that thinking. Well, we tend to view ourselves as a minority. And people, if you have a negative opinion about the government, say, oh, I better keep my mouth shut. Don't say anything because they'll all think I'm crazy. Turns out we're in the majority. We're not some little lunatic fringe. The ideas and the attitudes that we espouse and that most of the people listening to this program embrace to some degree, these attitudes and ideas are common in the United States. And the only thing that keeps many of us from talking about it is that the mainstream media doesn't really give us much play. They don't talk on a regular basis about how people have become disenchanted and even antagonistic to government. If we were getting a more legitimate play out of the mainstream media, there'd be a lot more people that would be standing up in the open 
and saying, hey, this is this stuff's got to stop. Trump is his candidacy and his success is an illustration of this idea. Trump is not some lunatic off the lunatic fringe. Trump is talking about what Americans in general are talking about. And he's the first one to do it. And for the moment, he's more or less the only one who's doing it. And that's why people, again, six in 10 caucus voters wanted a candidate from outside the political establishment. We know they're a bunch of crooks. They don't even bother to hide it. They don't have enough respect for us to even hide their, their treason. Their willingness to allow illegal aliens to pour into the country. Their willingness to encourage illegal aliens to come into the country. Bring Muslims in from the Middle East. Send our jobs to foreign countries. And the idiots, that would be you and me, we're supposed to just sit there and accept it and never complain and never understand. Well, it's turning out that 60, 70, 80% of the people do understand. And Trump has been the first politician to stand up and take advantage and speak out and say what a lot of people are saying, but only secretly, privately, because they thought they were all alone. Now we're beginning to find out, nope, they're not alone. They are. They have been the silent majority, and they are becoming the, I don't know, the, the, the loud majority. Mr. Trump won 70% of those who wanted an outsider, and 49% said of those who were angry, he even won 44% of the Hispanic vote in Tuesday's contest. Now, there's a surprise. I mean, Trump, after saying we need to get rid of the illegal aliens, you would think you'd have a hard time finding one Hispanic in 100 who would be prepared to support Trump. And in, and in Nevada, 44% of the Hispanic vote in the Tuesday uh, Republican primary, they said, yeah, vote for Trump. Well, they do have a lot of Hispanics in Nevada, and he does supply a lot of jobs to them in, in Las Vegas. But what I find encouraging, Al, is the numbers that you're, you're talking about, a group of people that, you know, there's more of us. We're not the minority. We're the mm. majority. My mm. question is, look how many more that are still quiet because they don't want to go with the, 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 the flamboyant Mr. Trump. You know, so many of them that are still tied to that Republican Party. I'll guarantee you there's a large percent that have those same feelings and they want to voice, but yep. they can't go against their uh, the, the, their commitment to the Republican Party. Well, they can if they want to. They well, it's a, it's, it's a process, Al. It's, it's a process. That. You know, so I would expect that those numbers, and I'm talking this in a positive manner, I would expect that those numbers will is are even greater. Well, I think that's what we're going to see. Um, we've we've seen these numbers are large right now. I think they'll get larger. Um, the, according to this article, again, from the Washington Times, I think that's where it was from, turnout was at a record pace, indicating that Mr. Trump drove first-time voters to the caucuses. Trump is attracting people who don't normally vote. Huh? And that's probably half the American people. Now, I don't mean that he's attracted, that, he's, that everyone who doesn't normally vote is all of a sudden attracted to Mr. Trump. But nevertheless, he's getting people involved because he's a candidate who says, look, some of this is a bunch of crapola and it needs to be stopped and he's not mincing words. I don't necessarily agree with everything Trump is doing, but nevertheless, he's putting things out in the open. 
And he's telling everyone in Washington, every congressman, every senator, that business as usual is not going to be usual in the future. You're going to take bribes at your own peril. You're going to betray betray the American people's interests at your own peril. You want to vote for the Trans-Pacific Partnership? You want to vote for um, the trade agreements that send our economy down the toilet? We're going to make you get get yourself a real job. We're going to run you out of Congress. We're going to run you out of the Senate. This is no longer a situation where the government can just sit back and do as they please, and everybody's just going to put up with it. We're seeing the beginning of a dramatic change, and I expect that change to become more pronounced and more obvious over the, over the next few years. It's going to be a dangerous time to be a politician. There are a lot of people who are fed up, and we've been silent. We've put up with it. The government thought we'd put up with it forever. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a line in the, in, the, in the Declaration of Independence, and I'm going I'm to look for it right this moment, see if I can find it. It says, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. What they're saying is that people will put up with an enormous amount of abuse before they finally say, all right, you SOBs, here we come. We are beginning to see with the Trump campaign We're beginning to see evidence of people who have finally had enough. The evils are no longer sufferable, and they are now ready to go after the forms to which they've become accustomed, which we find in Washington, D.C. right now. I don't know how this is going to play out, but I would say that the people in government, they need to pay attention. I don't doubt they are paying attention, and many of them are saying, oh, my God, how are we going to get out of this one? And I don't think they are. They have dug a hole for the whole country, and now they want to try to avoid responsibility for, for having dug that hole. And I think they're going to find out maybe, they were, maybe we'll put that hole to good use before this is all over. In any case, Trump won. It's not a surprise, but some of the evidence, again, the numbers that are voting for him, um, and the people coming from 44% of the Hispanic vote went for Trump. I mean... That's pretty amazing. That's really pretty amazing. So we'll see. There, there, is, there is a logical reason for that. I mean, I, I, maybe it's more, you know, a different reason. Trump doesn't put 44% of the Hispanic people in Nevada. What? No, it, but I mean, they know they're... I didn't say he employs 44%. I understand, but... But I'm sure he has a very strong presence along with the other hotel owners. And, and so forth and, and whatnot. But I'm just, it, it's interesting that, and it'll be interesting to see when you get to another state that has a high Hispanic uh, population to see, and that will give us a true, uh, you know, a true signal of where those numbers came from. But he has to do it in another state, too. Mm-hmm. Then you do it in one, you start with one. You know, one is one. Hey, look, there's no reason why he wouldn't get the Hispanic vote, because you have Hispanics that are here legally, that are working legally, and anything that comes across the border illegally also competes for their jobs. I understand so, that. So, yes, they, I can see where... But it's breaking up a stereotype. 
what he's breaking up a stereotype. And even the Hispanic people, it's a little like the American people in the surveys I was talking about, two surveys that indicate one people's greatest fear in this country is government corruption. The single greatest fear, and they list 88 different things you can be afraid of. And the biggest fear was government corruption. All right? It's evidence of a dramatic change in public opinion, public sentiment. If 44% of the Hispanic vote are voting in favor of Mr. Trump, they're saying, to heck with the Hispanic let's, agenda. Let's see how another state comes out. Well, we'll you know, see. That'll be, it'll be interesting. It's very interesting. And, uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Here's another one. This is from the Wall Street Journal. And the headline is J.P. Morgan. What's even scarier than oil? That's the headline. According to J.P. Morgan Chase, the biggest threat to future earnings isn't low prices. And it means future earnings for the, for the bank. The biggest threat to future earnings isn't low prices, low oil prices. It's super low interest rates. And we've talked about this in the last week or so. Um, the negative interest rates that are proposed in, the, in some places implemented in Europe, for example, and Japan, and some people are proposing them for here in the United States, and even zero interest rates. These have to have brutalized the banks. And a lot of people have said, look, the banks are all working hand in glove. The central, uh, and the Federal Reserve and the central banks of the work are, world are working with the rest of the banks, and they're out to oppress us and rest that. And the banks are finally coming up and say, look, we're taking a beating on this thing. And here's uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Again, biggest threat is super low interest rates. Suppressed interest rates are far more, far more damaging to long-run uh, profitability. They present a couple of examples, and if uh, the Federal Reserve sticks to the pace of tightening implied by its latest forecast for the short-term rates are likely to end up in, in, in coming years, um, these projected increases for 2016 and afterwards would bring the federal funds rate to around 3.25% by the end of 2018, from, from 0.375% now. In the blue sky scenario, J.P. Morgan would earn about $10 billion if interest rates went from 0.375% to 3.25%. They'd earn an additional $10 billion in 2018. <clears throat> if they stay more or less, if they, if they are increased more gradually, J.P. Morgan would only get $6 billion of an additional net, net income. Well, they're saying, look, our income depends on these, on these interest rates. And the big story here is that banks that were deemed too big to fail just eight years ago are now being abandoned, seemingly abandoned, and left to make it, that, make it on their own or go bankrupt. The Fed that nurtured banks and protected them through the Great Recession appears not only unable or unwilling to do so again, but it seems to be creating economic circumstances like Zero interest rate policy, which we've had for eight years, or negative interest rate policy, which is being proposed in places, that will certainly impoverish the banks. So what's going on here? If some of the banks were truly too big to fail just eight years ago, why are they being left to fail today? Something strange is happening. 
Don't know precisely what it is, but it's something to watch. Let's take a break for some commercials. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. Please stay tuned. and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Alfred Addis, here with Melody Cedarstrom on financial survival. Uh, we've got an article from Bloomberg. Saudi Arabia to U.S. oilmen. Cut costs or exit the business. There's the headline. The world's most powerful oil man brought a harsh message to Houston for executives hoping for a rescue from low prices. High-cost producers need to either lower costs, borrow cash, or liquidate. The message came from Saudi Arabian oil minister Ali Al-Nami. It means that deeper spending cuts, laying off more roughnecks and idling drilling rigs is coming to the American industry, oil industry. According to uh, Nami, he says it sounds harsh, and unfortunately it is, but it is the most efficient way to rebalance markets. As many as 74 North American producers face significant difficulties in sustaining debt, according to a credit rating from uh, 
credit rating firm Moody's Investor Services. Shale explorers from Texas to North Carolina will be decimated in coming months amid a wave of restructuring and bankruptcies. In months, you know, shale explorers from Texas to North Carolina, they're predicting they're going to be decimated in coming months. That's this year, amid a wave of restructurings and bankruptcies. For the oil industry itself, the warning sign of more, uh, the warning is a sign of more months, perhaps years of financial pain. Um, Naomi told executives in Houston that Saudi Arabia believed that freezing oil production, as just agreed with Russia, would be enough to eventually balance the market. Over time, high-cost producers will get out of the business, and rising demand will slowly eat up the oversupply. Um, now he's talking about freezing production with Russia. And he goes on and he says, the freeze agreement with Russia isn't cutting production. That's not going to happen, Naomi said. Uh, so Saudi Arabia is saying, we're not going to produce any more. We're not going to raise our production limits. We've frozen them at this top level. But we're not cutting. That's not going to happen. So all this means is they're going to hold what they've got. And they're going to let the rest of the war, the oil world, essentially fight it out to see who's going to survive. And many of the firms and perhaps even some countries won't, won't survive without, I mean, firms will go bankrupt and some of the countries will certainly go into political instability. And Saudi Arabia said, hmm, better them than us. In Houston, Naomi faced the same people that Saudi Arabia is trying to put out of business from North Dakota shale and Canadian tar sands to the deep water fields of offshore Brazil who need prices far above current levels to make profits. For the past year and a half, they have been fighting for survival. And Naomi comes out and he says quite correctly, he says, cutting low-cost production to subsidize higher-cost supplies only delays an inevitable reckoning. And he's exactly right. That's what people want. They say, you guys that are producing oil so cheap, you need to stop it so the rest of us can continue producing at higher prices. And, uh, and Saudi Arabia said, why should we subsidize you people that are producing at higher prices? Why should we cut our production, cut our income in order to subsidize you at higher prices? In the end, it's a false, I mean, the idea of subsidizing higher prices what industry, what industry can you point to where we can do that and it's ultimately going to be good for the people, good for the, even the industry? It'll be interesting to see if China or maybe even the Saudis will come in and pick up some of these, some of the drilling and so forth that is really ready to go belly up. I don't expect they will. I mean, it, it, all things considered, they're not going to make a recovery. It's not as if you're going to be able to get a good buy yeah, but it on a cheap oil well right now. At rock Rebel bottom. Huh. Maybe at rock bottom. Who's going to want them? <clears throat> if there's a glut of oil, at least so long as the glut remains, you know, people are going to sit back and say, I don't need another oil well. What do I need that for? It's not going to make me any money. Here's another article from Bloomberg. It would be a nice place to be buying up some oil in the United States if you don't have a position there. Yeah, but a nice way, a nice foot in the door. Yeah, but you can cap those. You can cap those rigs. 
Yes, but what door? Here's an article from Bloomberg, another one. And it says another oil crash is coming, and there may be no recovery. And they say superior electric cars are on their way, and they could begin to wreck oil markets within a decade. In fact, they talk about uh, within seven years. It's time for oil investors to start taking electric cars seriously. In the next two years, Tesla and Chevy plan to start selling electric cars with a range of more than 200 miles priced at the $30,000 range. Ford is investing billions. Volkswagen is investing billions. And Nissan and BMW are investing billions. Nearly every major car maker, as well as Apple and Google, is working on the next generation of plug-in cars. Question is, how soon could electric vehicles trigger an oil glut by reducing demand by the same, by, by 2 billion barrels? Even amid low gasoline prices last year, electric car sales jumped 60% worldwide. Now, that's an impressive figure. Everybody's, we've seen jokes. I've seen, well, now, you know, and I've joked myself, now you can afford to go buy yourself an SUV because gas prices are low. But in fact, the electric car sales jumped 60%, even though the price of gasoline was at nearly record low levels. People are still buying electric cars. If that level of growth continues, a crash-triggering benchmark of 2 million barrels of reduced demand could come as early as 2023, seven years from now. This article implies that electric cars may grow so rapidly by 2023, again, just seven years from now, the demand for gasoline and crude oil could be cut so low. But prices of crude oil and of producing corporate oil producing corporations stocks could be permanently diminished. The implication here is that the petroleum industry may be on track to fug, to follow the buggy whip manufacturers. It's hard to believe that the petroleum industry might be on the way out and might enter a permanent state of decline within the next seven years due to the proliferation of electrically powered automobiles. But it's maybe hard to believe right this moment, but it's not impossible. And as fast as things are changing in the world right now, I mean, this, this could happen. So the times are not only a changing, they're a changing fast, right? So if oil producers look at these, if they agree with this article from Bloomberg and, and uh, the people behind it, that the oil industry may be on the way out, right, permanently. Not a blip, permanently. Then who wants to buy the oil well? Um, where's the market going to be for? Where's the market going to be for oil? There may be a lot of capped oil wells, and in the event we ever run out of batteries for our electric cars, and maybe we'll go uncap those well, Sure, oil. I mean, automobiles do <clears throat> play a, a, take a large part of that oil for gasoline, but, I mean, there are still other industries that will continue to no, use oil. Not, I mean, it's not going to go away. No, it's not going to die, but the price is going to stay low on into the foreseeable future. And when I see but that first truly, electric vehicle, well, you know, then, you know, we'll, we'll see. And how long those electric vehicles... Well, I mean, and, and to see how easily those vehicles are, you know, brought into the, you know, family garage... I mean, I would love to have one. Don't get me wrong, but you know, um, 
They're out there. They're being sold right now. People are getting them. People are using them. Um, My family has a Prius, and I really like it. They can use they can use both gasoline and uh, uh, and it's great when they're low on gas. <laughs> they don't have to worry about running out. So it is a neat little vehicle. It really is. And the implication on all of this, though, is that the oil business. They may have one last hurrah if this article is correct. They may have a last hurrah where prices go higher, significantly higher, sometime during the next seven years. But that may be the end of the line for them. At that point in time, the number of electric cars in the market may be enough to set a permanent decline in the amount of crude oil that's produced in the world. And given the glut we have already and the glut that we're likely to have thereafter, that means the price of oil is going down. One last, maybe one last significant upward blip, but it's only going to last a couple of years, and then we're going to see a decline that will go on as, you know, on into the future, and oil's going to become something is nowhere near as important as it's been in the last century. It's moved the world for the last century. It's not going to move the world for this century. Uh, that's the implication. And all by itself, that raises, that's, that suggests we're going to see changes in geopolitics. What's going to happen to the Middle East when they find out that the oil glut is something like permanent and that prices are permanently low? How much tension will it have? Will it create over there? What about Venezuela? All right, they're already up to their knees or up to their ears in uh, in, in in political instability because prices, oil prices, are too low for them. Brazil's going to have a problem. This is going to change. It's going to predispose people to wars. It's going to change political power levels and structures, one thing or another like that. A lot of things are going to happen because of the technology of electric cars. And you can bet. I mean, nobody, no one can doubt that whatever the, whatever the situation is with electric cars right now, Tesla, for example, made a great automobile. They were selling, they were selling for $75,000 a car, a lot of money for a car. But it's a, it is, it in its own way, a spectacular automobile. Yeah, that should get And it will become garage. more spectacular and at lesser, at, at lower prices. And once somebody makes a real breakthrough in battery technology, and that could happen any day. Maybe it's already happened and it's been to some that's, degree suppressed. That's what I believe. All right. Entirely possible, but sooner or later, somebody's going to come out with a battery that'll let you put let that car ride not just 200 or 250 miles, which isn't enough for cross-country driving. You can't just drive. You can't plan I'm going to drive from New York to California in my electric car if I have to stop every five hours to recharge the batteries. Uh, nobody's going to do that. People want to be able to drive eight, ten hours a day. You get a battery in those cars that'll let you drive eight or ten hours a day. Put on five or six hundred miles a day, all of a sudden those cars are as good as gasoline-powered vehicles. And we'll see that. And it's just a question of how soon. And when we do, oil industry is going to suffer a significant and permanent decline. 
or at least that's the way it appears at the moment. So, you know, I'm just saying, if you've got some money squirreled away under your mattress that you'd like to invest, it may be that the crude oil business is not the place to go. It's perhaps, again, it may have one last hurrah where they make some serious money and people profit and everybody cheers for a couple of years. Long-term oil is perhaps not a dying industry, but it's it's an industry that's, that's declining, and it's going to continue to decline significantly on into the future. So probably not the place to invest your last money. So there's a word to the wise, Melody. So you need, if you've got some money that you'd like to invest, you need to look for something other than crude oil. And gee, what would that be, Al? I have no idea. I'm thinking about baseball cards, maybe. Baseball cards? Baseball cards, that's what I was thinking about. Hey, you get the right one, it could be a pretty good return. But we do have some great prices on gold and silver coins. Ladies and gentlemen, give us a call. 1-800-375-4188. And remember... um, Grams, if you pay too much for your gold, you're much better off with a one-tenth-ounce American Gold Eagle. You get more gold for your money. I don't know how, why that's so difficult, um, but give us a call, 800-375-4188. Okay, folks, we're out of time. Thank you for listening. Melody and I will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye.
their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.